Good evening, everyone. I'd like to call to order the planning board meeting for March 7th, 2023. My name is Carrie Martinek, chair of the planning board. Before I get started, I need to read a few announcements. This open meeting of the planning board is being conducted remotely pursuant to chapter 22 of the acts of 2022, an act relative to extending certain COVID-19 measures adopted during the state of emergency signed into law on July 16th, 2022. All members of the planning board are allowed and encouraged to participate remotely. The act allows the planning board to meet entirely remotely so long as reasonable public access is afforded so that the public can follow along with the deliberations of the meeting. The public is encouraged to follow along using the posted agenda unless the chair notes otherwise. Members of the public who wish to view their live stream of this meeting may do so by going to Northboro Remote Meetings on YouTube via the link listed on the agenda. Ensuring public access does not ensure public participation unless such participation is required by law. This meeting will feature public comment. At this point, I will confirm that those anticipated on the agenda are remotely present and can be heard. Members, when I call your name, please respond in the affirmative. Amy Pretzky? Here. Millie Milton? Here. Bill Pierce? Here. Anthony Zeiton? Here. And Steph, when I call your name, please respond in the affirmative. Laurie Connors? Here. Great. Okay, ground rules for the meeting. The chair will invite each speaker or applicant on the agenda by name to make a presentation and speak to their application. Participants will provide their full name and hold until their name is called. Each speaker will be asked to mute their phone or computer when not speaking and to speak clearly in a way that helps generate accurate meeting minutes. Those responding will be asked to wait until the floor is yielded to them by the chair. Speakers who wish to respond to the comments of others do so through the chair, taking care to identify themselves. Each vote taken by the board or committee will be conducted by roll call vote. For a public comment, after members have spoken, the chair will afford public comments as follows. By phone, dial star nine, Yep, by phone dial star nine to raise your hand and wait to be recognized by the chair. Please note party or phone number will be visible to those viewing the meeting. By Zoom, click raise hand on the bottom of your screen and wait to be recognized by the chair. The chair will ask members of the public who wish to speak to identify their names and addresses only. Once the chair has a list of all public commentators, the chair will call on each by name and afford three minutes for any comments. Okay, with that, why don't we get started with tonight's agenda. Uh, we do have um, some of our hearings, the attendees that are not able to arrive until a certain time. So I'm going to move the agenda around a little bit. We do need to wait until 6.05 to continue the hearing for 455 Whitney Street. So why don't we quickly take uh, one of our old uh, business items and approve the minutes from January 3rd, if everybody's ready to do that. Is everyone ready to approve the minutes from January 3rd? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I believe at the last meeting we discussed there were um, a few minor amendments made to those minutes. Are there any additional amendments for the January 3rd minutes? No. Okay, would anyone like to make a motion to accept the January 3rd minutes as amended? So moved. Second. Second. Okay, moved and seconded. All in favor, Amy? Aye. Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. And carries an aye. Okay, the minutes from January 3rd are approved. Um, at this point, we don't really have much else for old business. So why don't we just give it one more minute here so we can see who we have for attendees. Okay, I'm gonna pull um, Attorney Doneski into meeting. Okay, and we'll just wait a minute so that we can continue the hearing for 4.55. <laughs> 
Just laughing because Attorney Janeski's changed since we last saw him. Right, new haircut. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, I have 6.05 on my clock here. So at this point, I would like to read the public hearing notice for a public hearing for 459 Whitney Street site plan approval and special permit for groundwater protection overlay district bylaw for the proposed addition of 4,500 square feet of warehouse space and associated improvements. <clears throat> to read the public hearing notice, in accordance with the provisions of MGL Chapter 40A, Section 9, the Northborough Planning Board will hold a public hearing on March 7, 2023 at 6.05 p.m. to consider the application for site plan approval and special permit for groundwater protection overlay district bylaw submitted by Hasakawa Alpine American Inc. for the proposed addition of 4,500 square feet of warehouse space and associated improvements for the property located at 455 Whitney Street, Map 15, Parcel 13 in the Industrial Zoning District and in the Groundwater Protection Overlay District, Area 3. This application and plans are on file at the Town Clerk's Office, Planning Office, and may be viewed at the Planning Department webpage at the Town of Northborough, Mass. U.S. webpage under the Planning Department. Pursuant to Chapter 20 of the Acts of 2021, an act relative to extending certain COVID-19 measures adopted during the state of emergency, signed into law on June 16, 2021, as amended by Chapter 22 of the Acts of 2022, this meeting will be conducted via remote participation. No in-person attendance by members of the public will be permitted to participate in the public comment portions of this meeting from a PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or Android device. Please click on the URL posted in the agenda with the passcode and telephone number webinar ID and passcode submitted by Carrie Martinek, Chairman, February 17th and February 24th, 2023. Um, I know we do have, I can see um, Brian Falk. I'm gonna pull you into the meeting. Um, we're just gonna continue, but I'm gonna allow you to come in. Um, I understand we are just continuing the hearing to 6.10 p.m. on March 21st. Is that your understanding as well? Yes, it is, thank you. Okay, great. Is there any anyone else um, here in the attendance that should be in that you want me to pull in or you're representing the applicant? Nope, just me. Thanks. Okay, great. So with that, is there a motion from the board to continue to 6.10 p.m. on March 21st? So moved. Second? Second. All in favor, Amy? Aye. Billy? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Sorry, aye. And carries an aye. So this hearing for 455 Whitney Street has been continued to March 21st at 6, 10 p.m. Uh, thanks very much, Attorney Falk. We'll see you back in a few weeks. Right, thank you. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Okay. Um, next on our agenda, we are going to cover the continued public hearing for the purpose of seeking public opinion on proposed amendments to the Northborough Zoning Bylaws. We last talked about, just gonna shift my materials here. We only had a few remaining bylaws left and we do need to get those settled up for the, the town warrant that's closing. So what we had, where we had left off at the last meeting, we still had to cover, we are wrapping up a conversation on White Cliffs. Um, we had to still cover groundwater 
in MGL chapter 39. So those are the remaining items. Um, so why don't we start, we'll swing back around to White Cliffs. Why don't we start with groundwater? So, and we did receive some, an email uh, with some feedback on proposed changes to consider for this bylaw. So I'm gonna do, I'm gonna pull up the current groundwater proposal. And bear with me for a minute. I have quite a few documents pulled up. The most recent version is dated February 21st. Thank you. There we go. Oh no, those are draft motions. I apologize. I do have quite a few files. I'm just gonna look it up again. Okay, so I'm going to first look at the original draft. So I'm gonna pull that up. Lori, I know you made some changes to the previous articles discussed, but I'm going to pull up the original document here so that everyone can follow along. Okay, so we should be looking at this is the planning related warrant articles. And we're looking at the groundwater This is the right one. Yep. So we're looking at the groundwater protection overlay district bylaw. In this case, we the the board has had a continued discussion about um, what to do with the groundwater advisory committee. Just running into um, several issues over the last few years that the board has discussed. Oops, here's the rationale for that. Um, so this proposed amendment streamlines the permitting process for groundwater protection overlay district special permits by eliminating the groundwater advisory committee. So the boards and commissions who currently designate the members of the committee will still have an opportunity to review applications and submit comments to the permit granting authority, but they'll do so in a direct manner. This change eliminates redundancy by no longer requiring applicants to appear before both groundwater advisory committee and special permit granting authority to obtain a groundwater protection special permit. Duplicative language regarding deadlines for action on a special permit application is also proposed to be eliminated from subsection C5 because it appear, appears elsewhere in the bylaw. Um, I know we received an email from Scott Rogers with some suggestions to define the period of time from when the 21 days would transpire. Um, so that language. Um, it was actually a, a back and forth emailed conversation between Scott Rogers and I, where he pointed out that the language was confusing. Yep. So what I proposed is some uh, clarifying language. So the sentence that begins failure to respond in writing um, to the clerk of the special permit granting authority within 21 days following, I suggest uh, including the language receipt of the application by the applicable board or commission, striking out public hearing, shall indicate approval by said board or commission. So um, 
the way the language currently reads, it sounds like they should submit their feedback 21 days following the close of the public hearing, which obviously doesn't make sense because mm -hmm. the public hearing is closed right before the uh, decision is granted on a typical basis. Usually the, with the ZBA that occurs, the public hearing is opened and closed on the same evening. So what this says is that when um, the they receive the application. So that's immediately upon receipt from the town clerk and the uh, planning department. Then the application will be given to all of these uh, various boards and commissions. And they have 21 days from the date of receipt of the application to provide their feedback. Okay. So usually the turnaround time between receipt of an application and the start of a public hearing is around 21 days. Okay, so can you see now this is a version that has the red line? Or are you still looking at the original? No, so the, the red lines language is my proposed change based on the back and forth with Scott Rogers. Got it. So I agreed with him that the language was insufficient. Okay, so um, you can see here, this is the original, and then this would be the proposed change based on that comment. So any board discussion on that? I only have, do you think 21 days is enough? I, I mean, I know we have to get it done, but sometimes with our um, A&Rs, it seems like by the time it gets to the planning board already, two weeks has transpired. I'm just wondering if by the time the board meets, it gets it, is 21 days already, you know, it's probably already at day 20. So I wanted to be realistic based yeah. on uh, the ZBA practices. So usually on the, with the planning board uh, projects are continued, but on with the ZBA, they are typically not continued. So usually the public hearing is opened and closed on the same night and the decision is rendered. Um, so if we say 35 days, uh, ZBA only meets once a month. So if we say 35 days, then they would have already missed the vote. So they okay. will be sub submitting their comments after the decision has already been rendered. Okay, that makes sense. So yep. if they truly wanted a comment, I mean, I think it seems like their meetings, well, for Board of Selectmen, they meet twice a month anyway, and then the other committees could if they really wanted to comment, pull together and, and have a public meeting. Yeah, and I, I think that the reality is that mo more often than not, it's the staff that's commenting, it's not the board sure. or, or commission. So this gives the staff plenty of time to respond. So, you know, in the example of the Board of Health, that would be the health agents, of course. And, you know, with the Conservation Commission, that's our, our conservation agent. So I suspect that they're gonna be writing the letters anyway. Okay. Any other comments on this? Does it seem like a good, a good edit to this amendment? I think that sounds, Decent. Um, um, I have a question on the failure to respond in writing to the clerk of the special permit granting authority. Wouldn't you want to say to the clerk by the special permit granting authority? 
Well, it's to the clerk of the special permit granting authority. So that's Michelle. So failure to respond in writing to Michelle. Okay. Uh, who is our clerk. So she's to the clerk to the planning board as well as the ZBA. Got it. Um, would mean that they, they're all set, that they don't have any concerns. Right, right. I just didn't know if it should have been by the special. Well, Michelle is definitely not going to be submitting the letter. Um, so it should be um, whoever is going to respond on behalf of those boards, the commissions should be providing the letter to Michelle. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any other comments on this board members? Well, I think it's good. Yeah, I think it makes sense. The purpose is not to exclude these other committees or boards. So it's good to at least clarify that language so that they know how and when to participate. So I think mm -hmm. it's a good suggestion. Okay, why don't I open it up to if there are any, this is um, our public hearing. So I wanna open it up to any comments. Um, actually, we have Scott Rogers right here. So Scott, I'm gonna pull you in to speak to this and any other feedback that you have. Hi, Scott, just your name and address. Oops, are you in? Yeah, thanks. Scott Rogers, 26 Tomahawk Drive. <clears throat> Is that coming through okay? Yes, hello. My apologies for my voice. I'm a little hoarse from the weekend. <laughs> so um, yeah, Lori, thanks for thanks for the update based on, on some of our emails. What I'm still trying to forecast out, and this this probably wouldn't happen very often, but trying to figure out how this would be accommodated. Um, with the way that this paragraph 4C is written, it's still fairly directive to those other boards and, and uh, commissions. Um, it, it, it was very directive in its original statement, right? In that the application is sent to the members of the Groundwater Advisory Committee to get their written recommendations. In this case, if you really wanted written recommendations from one of these boards or commissions, I, I don't know how you would get time for, let's say one of the members of those boards to realize that there's something that the larger body should weigh in on, that they either convene an unscheduled meeting or at their next meeting, get it on the agenda in which they talk about it. And what if it's determined they needed to have the applicant come before that board or commission? I don't see how all that could get done within 21 days. So what I would suggest is that each uh, board and commission work with their staff person to ensure that that staff person is forwarding the application to them immediately upon receipt. And then um, my other suggestion would be that the, um, the members of the board or commission that are concerned should attend the, the, the permitting authorities public hearing and then provide the input at that time. So 
if you were interested in having a presentation or hearing a presentation from the applicant, uh, chances are that's not going to happen within the 21 days, but certainly the applicant will be providing a presentation to the planning board or the ZBA, whoever the permitting authority is. And then that would be your opportunity to ask questions uh, at that time. So let's see how that works for an individual member, but I don't see how you'd get written recommendations from the board without them conducting an open meeting and having their deliberations to determine what their written recommendations should be. Well, it would kind of be the same way as it is today, because right now you have representatives uh, to the groundwater committee. So the, the entire board of health is not providing comment, chances are. Chances are it's the single member of the board of health that's on the committee. So that wouldn't change. So it would just be that single person who currently serves on the, um, on the groundwater advisory committee who would then be attending the planning board meeting or the ZBA meeting and providing their feedback directly. That's how I envision that it would work um, yeah. when there is no committee. So there really isn't an opportunity for the boards or commissions to convene and deliberate over the application. It would be only if an individual member uh, reacted to the application and then individually they went to the public hearing that was put on by the SPGA. Correct. So, you know, it might, it might just be simpler if, if the, if the intent is to no longer have that deliberation by the groundwater advisor committee, um, why, why, why send it forward to these boards and commissions at all? Um, but, but I, I mean, the limitations are the limitations. Um, but I just, I just don't see how there's any practical way the the boards or commissions would be able to deliberate and deliberate and provide written recommendations. Yeah, I guess from my point of view, it sounds like from Laurie and in my own observations, it's primarily the staff that's providing a, a level of response. So I think it is important to still share these applications with these boards at a minimum so that the staff has them, which I think is part of our site plan review either way, is it not? I yes. Think, yeah. So I think it's important to acknowledge um, and have that opportunity. I see what you're saying, Scott, but I, I don't necessarily think that it's going to be this dramatic shift in um, information that, that we're getting if staff is still involved overall. So anyway, do you have other comments for this one? Yeah. And so, I mean, you'd, you'd end up having an individual member ask the staff, the staff liaison to that board or commission to write comments based on that individual's um, perspective. I guess it's just, it, it, it has no chance to go before the entire board or commission. 
I guess is is what I'm saying. Well, again, this is a this is a narrow view of groundwater, um, and so if you have specific groundwater expertise, that's one thing. But otherwise, um, this is really just to look at groundwater only. It's not for other boards to have a public hearing with an applicant, uh, you know, for each commission or board to do that. So. Uh, I think we got to keep that in mind with what we're having applicants go through is for a purpose and for, for help to, to relative to the special permit at hand, not just for the sake of going around to every single board. No, and that's not the case. It's it's definitely, you know, for, for specific to groundwater. It's just I don't see how there's any practical way those boards or commissions would be able to comment on the groundwater aspects using the discipline uh, you know, that that they're responsible for. So okay. I'll leave it like that. I don't have a way to improve this language other than striking completely that it's being transmitted to those boards and commissions. But um, to your point, uh, it makes sense to leave it in on the chance that an individual member could work with their staff liaison to that board or commission to provide individual written recommendations. Okay. Um, next point, um, you still have, and I think this is what was one of the areas that you cited as uh, some inconsistencies within the bylaws, you still have the word approval uh, in here. So um, the, the boards and commissions being asked for written recommendations would not be approving the applications. So you probably wanna change that phrase. That's a good point. Thank you. <clears throat> and given, um, and I don't, I don't, I don't have a recommendation on what that phrasing should be. I think it's, I think it's probably something a little different than just changing the verb. I think there's probably an, another way to say that if there or are. Would no, you say re recommendation for approval or? Well, so what I what I'm trying what it's trying to say here is that if there's no response received, then we assume that there's no issue. So um, I see Attorney Dineski here. I, I I'm sorry, Attorney Jesse. I thought I had you as a um, panelist. Do I? You're welcome to. to do you, did you have something for that one? Can you hear me, Madam Chair? Yes, we can. Yep. Hello. Um, and I apologize for the different screen there. Um, the issue here is it, it could be approval, but if you were to change it, I think the words would just be uh, no objection. And approval is in this sentence is not, in my opinion, in the sense of a formal approval. It's just that the bodies who uh, receive the notice would be deemed to not have an objection and, uh, as you indicated, uh, be uh, for lack of a better phrase, okay with what is being proposed. Okay, how do board members feel about that, changing that language to no objection? That sounds I good. That's, I think it sounds a little better than yeah, approval. Acceptable. <laughs> I approve. I have no objection to it. <laughs> <laughs> Any other feedback, Scott? No, that's great, thank you. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, any other comments on this from attendees? I don't see any additional comments. We did receive a written letter from the Board of Health. 
Oh, okay. Let's see. Did this come before um, the last meeting? I think I checked uh, from the 27th. No, no it, it was received uh, since the last meeting. I have it in front of me if, if you want me to read it. Um, it might also be online. I can check. Okay, so let me just take a look. Um, let's see. And who who is it? Was it forwarded from you or sent from a particular member? I forwarded it. Okay. Oh, okay. Hold on here. Um, are you still are you still looking at the? What are you looking at now? The, the file. Yeah. Oh, okay. two thousand twenty-three. Should be. Okay. So you see the letter the. Board of Health. Letter from the Board of Health. I can share it if you'd like. It's oh, no, I'm looking at it right now. I thought you could see it. You can't see it? Oh, okay. Yes, we yeah, can. I can see it. Um, so the Board of Health does not agree with disbanding Groundwater Advisory Committee. Um, they look at the wells, removing their advisory committee. Da, da, da. So I feel like whenever there's an application that requires Board of Health involvement, it's written into the bylaw to ensure that they're involved where they need to be involved. Um, so I, I mean, I personally appreciate they took the time to write this letter, but I still don't think they necessarily have groundwater expertise in the way that the SPGA, SPGA is looking for them. Any board thoughts on this? I, I don't disagree with that, Carrie. I think his concerns are, are um, um, you know, somewhat warranted, well, but at I the mean, same time, they're not being overlooked. This letter, but I still don't think. Oh, they hear feedback. Do you guys hear feedback? Groundwater expertise. In the I do. I hear you again. SPGA is looking for it's Coming from Mr. Dineski. Any oh, okay. Thank you. He must like to listen to what I have to say twice. <laughs> um, so anyway, Millie, go ahead. You thought it was. I think I, his points have some merit, but I don't think any of them are being overlooked by either the town engineer or the special permit granting authority. Yeah. Even with the last groundwater advisory meeting, it came as part of Fred's letter that you know, the Board of Health should look into something, should this be approved. It wasn't the Board of Health person that came with the information. It was information that after the Board of Health, I mean, if the groundwater committee is so approved, one of the conditions was it should also go to the Board of Health afterwards. Yeah. Like, well, again, that gets back to the town engineer knows when the Board of Health needs to be involved and puts them in, puts the Board of Health in those conditions that we include. Right site plan. So it's never bypassing the Board of Health. Does no. anybody feel like this bypasses the Board of Health? Because that would certainly be troublesome, but I don't feel that way. Right. I don't think so either. And I, there was a groundwater meeting when the groundwater actually discussed it and they were, they were okay with disbanding the groundwater committee, but it doesn't look like they wrote a letter. And when I went to the water and sewer committee, they were also not against disbanding the groundwater committee. Okay. And the only thing that, it, you know, um, I believe it's Mr. Seeger's comments is that 
sounds like he thinks that we are the the special permit granting authority would be overriding his or their um if you can go back to the letter oh i'm sorry i um overriding their authority what their domain is. their decisions yeah. um but that's not really so the last sentence on the second paragraph the planning board and zba do not have the jurisdiction to make board of health or other boards determinations but that's not really what would be happening okay so i think it sounds like there's a misunderstanding yeah with the board of health. has anybody been to the board of health meetings at all to talk about this bylaw or is this just from hearsay in response to hearsay okay so maybe what i can do is chair is follow up with michael or is this yeah. one from Kristen too maybe we can follow up and just sort of talk through what those concerns are and whether or not sure. this bylaw um, truly does impact what they may perceive this to impact. So I yeah. that any other thoughts from the board on this? Even when we've done duplexes, sometimes there's a condition of the number of bedrooms because it has to do with the septic, but it always goes back to the board of health after I think when they go for a building permit. So it's not up to our board to say, how much sewer they can have or septic they can have. It, it ends up going back to the Board of Health. At least that's what I was told before when we talked about the amount of bedrooms. That right. like even if we said they could have so many bat bedrooms, it, it wasn't up to us. It was up to the Board of Health, which happens after our approval, but before they get their building permit. Okay, Attorney Dineski, do you view um, disbanding the groundwater as infringing on the Board of Health's jurisdiction or their determinations or? Madam Chair, one of the items that was discussed previously and I think noted originally was that each of the boards who previously would designate a member of the advisory committee now may offer its comments and this sort of tracks back to a point that was being made earlier it's not that any of those boards is precluded but that 20 day one day period would simply mean that the board uh, would need to if it wanted to respond as a board or a commission notice and convene a meeting for the purpose of considering a particular application and discuss it and then take a vote as to its position or comments and provide that back within the 21 day window. Uh, the Board of Health, in my view, would still retain all of its statutory authority with respect to any matters in its purview. This amendment is changing a procedural element of the existing bylaw, so I don't see it as removing uh, the Board of Health's authority any more than any of the other boards and commissions who previously, or currently, I should say, have uh, the ability to designate a member of the Groundwater Advisory Committee. Okay, thank you. Okay, any other comments from board members on that? Okay, Scott, did you have another comment there? I can't tell if that's leftover or new. Is that, I wanna, do you have a comment? Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> Scott Rogers again at 26 Tomahawk. I just want to double check, Amy, you said that the Groundwater Advisory Committee was okay with its own dissolution? 
No, I meant to say Conservation Commission. Maybe I okay. said water. <laughs> <laughs> that confused me. And then Carrie, what element of their letter was based on hearsay? Hearsay? Um, I'm not sure. I just wanted to make sure that I had a conversation with them in the event that um, something wasn't clear because it seemed like they were under the impression that they were losing their jurisdiction. And I don't think that's the case as Attorney Dineski pointed out. So I just want to at least find out what sparked that concern and make sure we uh, alleviate that. Okay, yeah, it was covered through two of their meetings and uh, with either uh, Kristen or the chair of, of the Board of Health, you'll, you'll get that um, get that clarity. Okay, great. Yeah, I don't think there was a planning board member meetings. there. Yeah, I don't think there was a planning board member there to speak to it. So I just want to make sure they have that opportunity. So um, I'll follow up with them. Great, thanks. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, and then let's see here. Oh, I'm sorry, we have one more here under, um, let's see, going back to MGL chapter 39, section 23D. I'm gonna share my screen again. Okay, so in this case, this is, can everybody see now back on the PDF acceptance of MGL chapter 39? Mm -hmm. Yes. Great. So this is um, this acceptance of this chapter 39, section 23D will apply to municipal boards, committees, or commissions that hold adjudicatory. I can't. I'm having trouble with that word. Hearings. If a member is absent from no more than a single session of the hearing at which testimony or other evidence is received, that member may vote on the matter if, prior to the vote, she or he certifies in writing that she or he has examined all evidence received at the missed session, including an audio or video recording or transcript of the missed session. So this is really just the Mullins, is this in short called the Mullins rule? Is that what we still call it or not call it? That's correct. Okay. Um, so I think the board talked about this just um, as a matter of being able to still participate. And if that emergency comes up and you can't make a meeting, you're not um, under that pressure to come anyway or else you won't be able to participate. Um, so I think that's helpful for all boards, not just the planning board. And this would apply to all boards. Um, any additional comments from board members on that? I was just curious, did we present that one or is that the Board of Selectmen? Yeah, I've been uh, talking with the town administrator about that. Um, because it originated here, I think uh, he would prefer that the uh, planning board present that one, but it, it really could be anybody. It, if you want me to present it, I can present it. Um, I think there's been more discussion here than there has been with, say, the uh, the appropriations committee or the uh, board of selectmen. Okay. Any any other comments from the board? No. Okay. Any public comments on this one? Scott, looks like you have a comment on this one. Whoops. Scott, do you have a comment on this one? Oh, sorry, you may have just had your hand up from before. Did you still have something for this or it was just left over? I can't hear you. Yeah, my sorry, it took me a while to get the, no, no comment. That was just left over and my apologies. Oh, okay. All right, there we go. Okay, any other comments on this one from anyone? 
Okay, so then at this point, we still have um, swinging back around. The last item that we talked about was the White Cliffs rezoning. So this is something that we talked about and cut our conversation short. So I wanted to make sure we had the chance to get back to that. Um, Lori, nothing's changed on this one, I don't think. Let me... Um... No, my, my primary concern is that if... Uh, for for some reason or another, the town does not decide to go forward with the Metro West proposal, which of course does not need the zoning change. So they're proposing an affordable housing development and they can go forward with that affordable housing development, regardless of what the zoning is. It could be zoned industry and they could still go forward. So they would not benefit from this zoning change. Um, I was primarily interested in continuing with this because I know that proposal is very controversial and I'm not sure uh, what will happen. So in the circumstance that that proposal is defeated, um, I wanted to come up with some sort of uh, reasonable use because right now um, it can't even be used as an event venue or a restaurant. So the historic use would be prohibited under the current zoning. So pretty much the only options available for the property are a single family home, a duplex, assisted living, a bed and breakfast, and an institutional use. Like it could be used as a church or a school. Um, and that's really all that's available. So by rezoning, uh, it would enable a variety of uses. So it could be, uh, could be commercial use, it could be mixed use, it could be an event venue, it could be a restaurant. So it, it's mostly a, you know, oh no, <laughs> you know, this, this proposal isn't going through, what else can it be? Mm -hmm. um, so that, there has been a long history of uh, attempts to sell the property and it's been very difficult to do so. And I think that part of the impediment is the current zoning. Okay, um, board thoughts on that? I don't know, I guess I feel that um, keeping it the way it is does give us some say in what does or doesn't come down the line rather than leaving the door more open and then having it allowed by right or use. And I do think that if if somebody came up with a proposal that did fit any of those that that even now you were saying are that that, that aren't allowed, I do think that they probably would be given uh, a variance or an exception. Like a restaurant, I think, would be something that would be, you know, voted in or approved. Okay. Other thoughts on that? Bill? Yeah. So if the, um, if it gets, if it gets voted down in town meeting, would the town go back out again and do an RFP to solicit people to bring in, you know, other opportunities again? If the town, if this article got shot down, or if the no, the proposal, the proposal. I I don't know 
that is an option that is available. Um, the, the professional consultant that we hired, the real estate professional, um, said that he thought that the first time we go out to bid would be the most successful. Um, in order to recruit the folks that we did recruit, we did put in the RFP that there would be a rezoning. So even though we put that in the RFP, we only received three, three op options. Two of them were housing, one of them was business. Like well, I said, I it's a super heavy lift because the, um, in order to, to make the property usable, we're talking about a, a seven to $10 million investment. Mm -hmm. So think anything that can sweeten that pot <laughs> is key. Were you thinking something behind that question, Anthony, or was that just a point of clarification? Uh, just clarification. Okay. Bill, did you have something? Yeah, I, I think we need to be a little careful here because, um, you know, keeping in mind that use variance, the first rule of a use variance is it that there has to be some type of financial um, issue, right? That's requiring that use variance to then have to be applied. And um, somebody spending, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, it's not a financial, you can't look at the financial hardship. It's based on soil, um, topography, and shape of the lot. So the those experience. are the three hardship criteria that you have to meet uh, in order to get a variance. For a use variance? Correct. I thought financial hardship was like rule number one. No. That's, that's been applied in the past, but that's not actually the mm -hmm. rule. Okay. Um, and somebody coming in spending $2 million, let's say, to purchase this is, isn't going to take the chance of that not going through, of that variance not going through, right? It, unless it's Trump or somebody with a, a lot of money to spend, um, in which case they're probably not going to build a single family home on that site. So, I'm just concerned that if we don't open it up, um, it really limits that site. And the only thing that's gonna happen is that building is gonna fall apart. Mm -hmm. Amy, you have something? I think um, with the, there was a petition that came in. And I think with that many people, if the Metro West housing gets defeated, and they defeat the business use at the same time, I think then it takes two years to come back. My opinion, I would wait until we have an applicant and it goes out to RFP again and you have a commercial use and then have a special town meeting where you are gonna disperse it or um, sell it to that person and then change the zoning at the same time. Because right now you can't sell it to a, commercial use anyways, unless we go through a town meeting or a special town meeting, I just think we should wait and do it all at once. I think it's a risk to do it ahead of time. 
I think it's just going to be super hard because this this effort to find uh, uh, somebody to take the property off our hands was a big effort. And despite the big effort, uh, this is what we got. So we really only got one viable response, realistically. And so I suspect that if we go out to bid again, we'll just get another affordable housing development because it, in the circumstance, it doesn't matter what the zoning is for an affordable housing development. So if you don't want an affordable housing development, then you should keep the zoning the way it is. If you want an alternative to an affordable housing development, then you should consider rezoning or at least uh, put it before the town meeting vote and have them decide uh, whether it should be rezoned or not. One thing that um, I struggle with a little bit is the last time we voted on White Cliffs, the, the town didn't have all the information at once. So we voted in piecemeal. And it was, I think there's a lot of regret today and a lot of um, angst over this because none of the information was ever, it wasn't all given in one shot. So people voted on this and then felt deceived after the fact because no, no committee supported it or wanted to endorse it. There was no plan for it. We just voted on a half-baked presentation. And I, I get concerned when we only offer a piece of the plan to the town without telling them or without them knowing like what's to come. And I already see there's confusion over this being part of the um, Metro West proposal. And I just think the, the second part is that this will get shot down at town meeting. I, I, there, I, I, with the petitions that are going around and the amount of um, outcry, I just can't imagine this passes a town meeting. So in that case, then what? Then we're stuck for two years without the ability to be, you know, if somebody comes, I don't see why in the RFP we couldn't put, you know, zoning to be worked on or whatever we did in the last RFP. I don't know what we put in there. Did we put a disclaimer about zoning? Uh, we said that we would rezone it to business east. So, but just to underscore, this has absolutely nothing to do with the Metro West proposal. Oh, of course, of course. But if you and I, you and the planning board and people watching may, may be able to get that now, but at town meeting, you can't control the narrative. It's a very um, volatile, it can be a very volatile environment. And when you can't control the narrative, um, I, I just think it's a huge risk for us to present only half of the piece and then have people vote and be left without options that we would like to have at a later date. But I don't know. I don't know if other board members worry about that or. The, the Metro West proposal uh, can advance regardless of the zoning. Cause like I said, it, it would be a 40B development. So it's a comprehensive permit. So they would go to the ZBA, all the zoning would be thrown in the trash and uh, this would advance. This zoning proposal does not allow multifamily housing. It allows mixed use. So it could be, you know, a combination of multifamily housing and business use, but business East zoning allows business uses. So it would allow the event venue use, the restaurant use, the brewery, the office use. So it would allow commercial uses that are currently not allowed. 
It would also allow, you know, assisted living and some of the residential uses that are currently allowed under the current zoning. Um, it wouldn't allow a single family home. So it's, it's an alternative to the Metro West proposal. No, I get that. I know that the, they're two different beasts, but the, when you're in town meeting, I don't think that's going to be necessarily the narrative that comes out. So if this fails, and then we also don't we also don't vote for the Metro West proposal, then we have nothing, no options to go back to zoning. So even no, though that's, that's not necessarily true because it could all, all, always be rezoned for something else. So if it failed to get the business east zoning, then it could always be included within the um, you know, the MBTA multifamily zoning, or it could be a special White Cliffs zoning district. So it could be something else. Um, it is true that it couldn't be voted as uh, business east for two year time frame, but um, you know, it could be voted for uh, an alternative. Hmm. Okay, thoughts on that? I still think we need to know the whole picture. Like when we first started talking about this, it was a placeholder to see what we got from the RFP. And since we didn't get a business use from the RFP, I think we need to wait until we find out what the use is. And by that, I mean, you can do a special town meeting in the fall mm -hmm. when we know. But there is a risk that there will never be a, a business use. Uh, I just want to make that clear. Um, you know, the only business use that was proposed uh, didn't meet the criteria. You know, there wasn't any real financial data mm -hmm. uh, to back up the proposal. So that's why it didn't advance. So there is a risk of going out to bid and getting no responses or getting another housing response. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, the one thing I felt that because this is such a unique piece of property, that the RFP really did not give a lot of time for people to put, I, I think some of the plans weren't even fully developed the responses. I felt like that was pretty short time for that this type of a proposal. And I don't know if that's why there weren't as many or just people weren't gonna be able to pull that information together. So I just sort of felt that it was a, a pretty concerted effort, intense effort, but I'm not sure the time really reflected what people would have needed to pull something like this together. That was my concern. We could recreate a, a White Cliffs, like an overlay or a district. Yeah, I mean, uh, that is possible. I mean, I think it's important to, like, for example, it could be included within the MBTA multifamily overlay. So we have to rezone an area of at least 50 acres the smallest area needs to be at least five acres. 
So this could qualify for the uh, MBTA. Uh, it could be another overlay district. Um, so right now, the reason why I had suggested business east, because half of the property is already zoned business east. Mm -hmm. So what's not zoned business east is the building itself. So <laughs> I mean, the, the, the frontage. Thing. The frightening thing about Business East, as is, is all of the buy right uses in here. Um, a repair shop, uh, just naming one, looking through here, different shops, different uses that we haven't even really gone through and thought, would we want whole, no, that's not allowed. Um, are these the uses that we'd want there uh, in general, I guess, or I don't know if anybody's taken that effort. Uh, what do we want there? If we were to look at all the buy right uses where we have no say over, is this really what we want there? What's the impact to the residents over there? Oh, solar, is that? Oh no, that's an accessory use. All right, I'm just looking really quickly. <laughs> so we wouldn't want a solar field over there, I don't think. Um, so that, just looking at, I, I don't know, flipping, flipping that property to business east, and not really thinking through all the buy right uses there and not really the residents living around there don't, the abutters don't really understand, I don't think all the buy right uses there. Um, I don't know if we wanna do that big of a flip without having any information on what's gonna happen with White Cliffs. The other thing to keep in mind though is what Lori just said is that half of it is already business east. Yeah, that's a good point. The half though is like right up against the road, like the business east part of it, the back half is residential because that's closer to the residential. It's like split down the middle. Mm -hmm. Right, so you could have any one of those things by right in the business east in the front of the property. And then just, you know, nothing in the back. Mm. It could be a split lot at some point with, there's probably enough frontage to give Business on the front and residential in the back. But then, so I guess I wonder too, did we did we say White Cliffs for it to become a bank or a, a dental office? I don't know. Did is that the, what the town voted on when we voted to preserve White Cliffs and use CPA money and all of that? I know that's not our role now to um, argue that part of it, but I'm just wondering, like when I look at these buy right uses, was that vote to make White Cliffs a bank? I don't know. I, I mean, so I feel like if we make a business east, it could be a bank and then there's no, it's a buy right use. Could be a, a repair. I don't, I don't think it'll be any of those uses unless the building is knocked down. And of course, the point here is to try and preserve the historic mansion. I don't know how this bylaw does that. Well, also recall that the uh, town meeting has to approve the sale uh, to whichever party. So, you know, before the property is sold, uh, we should know what the use will be, whether it's Metro West or whether it's somebody else who hasn't come to the forefront as of yet. Mm -hmm. So at that time, they'll be making a proposal. And if people don't support that proposal, then they would just deny the sale at the town meeting. 
Okay, why don't we open it up to um, public comments and then come back to it if board members want to think for a minute. Um, let's see, I have Anthony Cervadeo raising a hand here. Hi, Anthony, just your name and address. Hi, Anthony Cervadeo, 26 Stratton Way. Hi, hello. Hi. Um, so I guess my one concern is, here is, why are we putting the cart before the horse? Like, why are we voting, why would we vote to rezone this without an actual plan in place. Um, I think I, I, I kind of mirroring what Amy said earlier is, you know, it, it, it seems foolish to do that with a, a concrete plan that the town is also voting on. Okay. Thank you. Oh, anything else there? I can't, okay. No, nothing else. Oh, okay, thank you. Any other feedback from the audience? Okay, I don't see any other hands up. Um, I think we also received um, an email from Shen Ming Lin that went to the planning board and the board of health. Um, that was, it sounded mostly in regards to the uh, Metro West proposal in general. Um, so I think the board received an email on that, um, not, not being in favor of it. And an email from Anna Hogan Servadeo, who wanted to remind us of the petition that she had sent um, at the last hearing. And I, I think that was about 75 or so that had signed a petition um, against this particular zoning amendment. I don't, I didn't receive any other emails, Lori. I don't know if anything else came in. No, nope. from twenty second to this meeting. So, okay. I don't think I received the Shen email. Can you please forward that to me? Oh, sure, sure. Um, I thought it went to the whole planning board. Can, are you still looking? Oh, I got PDF? it. Am I still on the PDF? Uh, maybe I'm just spelling her name wrong. Is it? Oh, Shen, Shen Ming Lin. Um, oh, no, she didn't send it to the planning board email. She she sent it to the members individually. I'm sorry. I thought um, you were on that. I'll forward that to you now. Okay. I just sent that to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Thoughts on what to do with this one? Maybe we just go down all of them and vote. I don't know. Because this is, is this the last one? Yes. And then we just need to do motions for all of our bylaws. So you want to make sure you close the public hearing before you make those motions. Oh, thank you. Um, any other comments on this from board members before we motion to close the public hearing? Okay, is there a motion to close? I'm gonna make sure there's no more comments. I don't see any. Is there a motion to close the public hearing? So moved. Second. 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 All in favor, Amy? Aye. Lily? Aye. 
Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. It carries an aye. Okay, so the public is here, the public hearing is closed. Um, now that we've had a chance to go through all of the bylaws, we will now do motions to recommend whether we're in favor of amending the zoning bylaw. So I'm going to start. Uh, would it be helpful if I shared the document or is everybody following along? Yeah, okay. And I think, Lori, the one from the 21st has any sort of amendments that we've made to date. Is that correct? I just uh, incorporated the amendments that had been discussed at the prior meeting. So those are tracked in the text of the uh, the February 21st. All right. Thank you. And they appear in blue. Got it. Okay, so starting from the top, is there a motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-02-040, the definition of transient as amended? So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. Here's an aye. Okay, is there a motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-02-040, the definition of temporary structure as proposed? So moved. Second? Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There's an aye. Okay, motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-02-040, the definition of structure as proposed. So moved. Second. Second. Aye. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There's an aye. Motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-02-050 site plans paragraph A2 as proposed. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. And carries an aye. Okay. Motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-02-050 special permit with site plan approval paragraph D1 as proposed. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. Motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-05-020 classification of uses paragraph C4C as proposed. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. Aye. Motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-05-020 classification of uses, paragraph J to B3 as proposed. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There's an aye. Motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-06-030 table two, table of density and dimensional regulations as proposed. I was just saying which one this was. I'm sorry. 
Oh, do you want me to pull up the dimensional chart? Which one was this for again? Lot coverage. Oh, okay. So this was uh, an updated chart, which included the missing footnote four in the industrial district that we talked about last time we had a public hearing. So it was to include maximum lot coverage requirement for the RA, RB, RC, and RC districts. Oh, okay. Is there a motion to recommend in favor? So moved. Second? Second. Motion's been made and seconded. Any further discussion on this one? Okay. All in favor, Millie? Aye. No? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. Okay. Motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-07-010, Groundwater Protection Overlay District, paragraph C3, as proposed. Someone. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. No? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. A motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-09-020 site design standards paragraph C6 as amended. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. Aye, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm <laughs> so moved. I'm getting confused. Quite a few. I know this more than I remember. <laughs> Take a breath. We're on off street parking. Motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7 09 030, off street parking and loading, paragraph B1C as amended. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. Motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-09-040 signs, paragraph B, by adding definitions for externally illuminated sign and internally illuminated sign. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Tiffany? Aye. Amy? Aye. And carries an aye. Okay, now we're back to White Cliffs. Is there a motion to recommend in favor of rezoning that portion of 167 Main Street as shown on Assessor's Map 53 as Parcel 73 and the land located at 0 Main Street as shown on Assessor's Map 53 as Parcel 155 from the Residential C District to the Business East District? So moved. Second. Okay, no second on the motion. Okay, the motion fails. Um, Attorney Janeski, do I need to do anything else for a failed motion? Do I need to close it out with a reverse motion? Oops, did, I let, did we lose Attorney Janeski?
Sorry, I, I don't know what happened to you there, Attorney Janowski. You did send me a text a while ago saying Madam that he Chair, was dropping off and rejoining. If you I'm sorry hear about that. Yep, we lost you there. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I changed because of the I had some device problems. Oh, no worries. Okay. Uh, you have declared that the motion, you've declared that that motion to approve the amendment with respect to Whitecliffs has failed, so it will not be uh, recommended by the planning board. So um, you may want to confirm that with a motion that the planning board does not recommend that proposed rezoning. The question I had was, would it go on the warrant? Because it was just a placeholder until we decided whether or not we wanted on the warrant, and it hasn't gone to the selectman yet for approval. The proposal was filed with the board and then referred to the planning board. I don't know at this point where the uh, warrant stands, but the board. Uh, well, let me back up. Is it the case that this proposal originated with the planning board? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was put so on as a placeholder, though. We weren't, you know, no one had decided right. whether we wanted it or not. Yes. So I would recommend again that you take a vote to uh, recommend against including the proposed rezoning on the warrant for the annual town meeting. I will need to confirm some of the procedural steps that I don't have access to at this point, but that would be a way for the planning board to express its view that it is not uh, either proposing the amendment and does not recommend the amendment. Okay, so is there a motion to oppose rezoning that portion of 167 Main Street as shown on assessor's map 53 as parcel 73 and the land located at zero Main Street as shown on assessor's map 53 as parcel 155 from the residential C district to the business East district. And do we have to say not included on the town warrant? Is that what he said? Oh, Attorney Dineski, is that the correct motion? Yes, your your recommendation uh, as a board is to not present it to the meeting as an amendment. Okay, so as part of this, this is a single motion, not a secondary, as part of a single motion? I think you can include it, yes, as a combined motion. I'll sec, I'll. Hold on, I'm gonna redo the motion, don't sure. worry. Okay, so is there a motion to oppose rezoning that portion of 167 Main Street as shown on Assessor's Map 53 as Parcel 73 and the land located at 0 Main Street as shown on Assessor's Map 53 as Parcel 155 from the Residential C District to the Business East District and to not... Wait, I have a double negative. If we're opposing it... The motion would be to oppose, as you have read, Madam Chair, and to recommend against inclusion of the uh, article seeking the rezoning on the town meeting warrant. So moved. <laughs> okay, so and to recommend not including this on the town warrant. 
And Amy, you've moved that. Mm -hmm. You so moved. Yeah. Second. Second. Okay. So the motion is to oppose the rezoning and to also recommend not including it on the town warrant on the warrant at town meeting. Any further discussion on the motion and this the motion that's on the table? Okay. All in favor, Amy? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Bill? No. Millie? Aye. And carries an aye. Okay. Down to groundwater. Motion to recommend in favor of amending zoning bylaw section 7-07-010 groundwater protection overlay district paragraph C5 and D as amended. So moved. Second? Second. Second. All in favor, Amy? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Bill? Aye. Billy? Aye. Here's an aye. And finally, motion to accept the provisions of Mass General Laws Chapter 39, Section 23D as proposed. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Amy? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Bill? Aye. Billy? Aye. There's an aye. Okay, so that concludes our bylaws. Uh, thanks for everybody for participating in that discussion. I know it took us a couple of hearings to get through that, um, but we should be set for our zoning amendment for town meeting. At another time, we'll need to discuss um, who is covering which amendment at town meeting, but we won't do take that time to figure out now. I don't think that's something we have to um, have prepared. Oops, Attorney Dineski, I just moved you out of the box by mistake. Okay, uh, moving along on the agenda here. We have the continued public hearing for 79 Bartlett Street site plan approval for replacement of two existing athletic fields, a track, nine tennis courts, spectator seating, lighting, and construction of associated improvements at the athletic complex. So if we could bring in the staff there, I think I see Kathleen, um, Keith, Superintendent Martineau. Is there anyone else that should come in from your team? Kathleen? Oh, I think they're raising their hands. Is there, is Matt Kinlan on your team? Yes. Uh, Steven LaRosa. Yep. Um, Rudiman M. On your team? No. Paul? Or do you have your whole team here, essentially? Yes. Okay. Others may just be comments um, from the public. Yeah, and yeah, that's it. Okay. OK, no problem. All right, great. Thank you for joining us this evening. Um, for I wrote down a couple of things that we need to cover tonight. Unless you want to take it in a specific order, um, you're welcome to kind of set the table and what you'd like to cover tonight, and then we can get started. Is there a particular place you wanted to start? No, I think we could start, Kathy. I think we could start with um, the report from Weston and Samson and Steve. Great. Sounds great. Hopefully uh, everybody's had a chance to uh, take a quick look at the, uh, the four-page report that we generated. Um, we were asked to uh, act as a independent third party to evaluate 
uh, two things primarily uh, associated with the project. One being the uh, testing results for synthetic turf materials being proposed for use at the project. And the second being uh, to evaluate uh, samples of soils from the existing fields, which would be receiving synthetic turf uh, as designed uh, in the project documents. So I'll cover the, the second one first and the first one second. Uh, we went out uh, to the facility in early February and collected eight individual soil samples from uh, the surface soils that are out there. So basically from zero to six inches below ground. Um, as you can imagine, things were pretty well frozen. Uh, and so the soils were chipped out in chunks of frozen soil placed in the sample bottles we got from the lab. And those were uh, brought to Alpha Analytical for analysis for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which uh, the acronym PFAS is utilized, um, which I'm sure many of you have been hearing about in the news from drinking water supplies and uh, at military bases with artificial, uh, with um, AFFF, the uh, aqueous foam forming foams, uh, and even into consumer products. There's a number of states out right now that uh, have bans on uh, PFAS in food containers and carpets, things like that. Um, the, I, I looked at the lab analyses results that we got back to confirm that the data that we were receiving seems accurate and that their analysis methodologies were accurate. Um, and then took a look at the data itself to see what it um, what it revealed with regard to the PFAS that are present. Uh, I looked through the data package. It shows uh, that the data is very, um, the analyses that were done are uh, what I typically see from the laboratories. Uh, these compounds are very difficult to analyze for. And um, there's often flags or qualifiers for the data in the uh, results that we get. Um, I took a look at those that we have in this data set and they uh, appear to be typical of what I typically see and don't raise any concern with me with regard to accuracy. So I believe that the data is accurate and is representative of what we're finding in the soils uh, out at the site. Um, we did find a number of PFAS uh, in each of the soil samples collected. Uh, the concentrations that we saw of each individual PFAS, there are hundreds and thousands of these compounds, uh, but the lab analyses reports uh, 26 of them, I'm sorry, 24 of them. And um, they are very specific compounds. Uh, six of them are uh, regulated by the state of Massachusetts in soil and in groundwater and in drinking water. So all six of those are reported by this analysis. We did find uh, five of those six compounds uh, in at least one soil sample uh, 
that we collected. And as I said, every soil sample did have a PFAS, be it one of those six or some of the others that we can quantify. Uh, in looking at the concentrations of the compounds that we found, um, they appear to be typical of what we find for the concentration of these compounds. I don't want to use the word background because these are, these are man-made compounds. It's not like, say, arsenic, which might be, or radon, that might be naturally occurring in the rock or the soils that you have. These are man-made compounds, but they are ubiquitous in our environment unfortunately. And the concentrations of the compounds that I see in these soil samples are within the range that we see of background in studies done in Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts. So we do see these things, but they aren't above what we see in locations where we, we wouldn't expect a PFAS to have been dumped or an old dump was there. And, you know, we would see much higher concentrations than what we see here. So we do see these compounds. They appear to be at concentrations that I would expect to see in this area um, and could very well be reflective of what are in everybody's yards uh, who's on the call. Um, that being said, unfortunately, the concentrations that we do see, although I think they are typical of what we would see, they're above a reporting concentration for the Massachusetts Contingency Plan. So because we have this data, we will be working with uh, the school to work our way through the Massachusetts contingency plan uh, reporting requirements and follow up assessment to get the appropriate information that we need to confirm my thoughts that this data indicates this is um, this is ubiquitous and typical uh, and to determine um, whether any other assessment or evaluation needs to occur. Uh, so that's the, the nuts and bolts of the soil sampling that has occurred out there. Uh, the second part of our, our task was to look at um, what test results have been provided by the manufacturers of the synthetic turf that's being proposed for use out on the, the project. I looked through what has been uh, provided to date and um, three of the uh, vendors, uh, Act Global, Sprint Turf and Shaw via their, uh, via US Green Tech uh, have provided data for uh, the yarn, the fibers and backing of the actual carpet and for the infill materials uh, that are put in the, the carpet to hold the, the grass fibers up. Um, the lab analyses that were done 
uh, for those tests are similar in uh, how they evaluate these materials at the laboratory. Um, as you can imagine, testing these materials for these particular compounds, uh, there isn't a uh, EPA method that we can go to or uh, some other standard method. The DOD has developed a, a methodology or a, a quality plan to follow. And that's basically what these folks have done. So I think that looking at what the analysis was, I believe that that, that data is representative of what individual compounds are in the turf materials and that it is a comparable uh, analysis to what we performed on the soils. Um, those uh, turf, synthetic turf tests showed um, no individual quantifiable PFAS above the reporting limits for the tests that they performed. So the one caveat I'll give you is the level of how little they could see in those materials is a little bit higher than what we can see in soils. And that just has to do with the, the media itself and how they can extract it and, and work on it. So the levels that they could report to in the synthetic turf is in the two to five range. What we can see is from the a little bit less than one range. So if you look at the table that I presented in my report, we have concentrations in that a little less than one, two. We've got a couple that are more than five, but in general, they're around the same range. Um, I've seen other synthetic turfs tested uh, and from other manufacturers that show similar results, they all are in that kind of a little bit elevated to uh, is about as good as they can get. So again, I think that data is, is pretty representative. My one comment about that turf data is it is um, probably not ripe anymore for direct use for this project. Uh, these are from materials that were tested in 2019 and 2020. Um, there's been a lot of activity regarding extruded plastics, PFAS, and, and carpet and turf manufacture over the last few years. So what I recommend is that uh, prior to any materials coming out to the site, that a new test be performed, preferably on the lot and batch of materials that would come to this property so that you know that a test has been performed appropriately on the material that's actually coming to your site prior to it getting there. Um, and then that way you've got a, a better uh, ability to say, we know if there's quantifiable levels of PFAS in our materials that actually come to our site. So that was a little bit more long-winded than I was hoping, but you start talking science and chemistry and I kind of fall into that sometimes. 
So, so I, I guess really what I'm I'm hoping to do is to answer any questions you may have. There's a there's a lot of science going on, and and um, and I just want to make sure that you folks understand kind of what we did and and what we found. So also, um, I assume you saw the questions from our conservation agent. I did. Okay. So, in terms of addressing those questions, is that something? Um, Lori, does does our conservation agent need to be a part of that? Or I know he's not here tonight and Fred's not here either. How do we approach? Uh, there's quite a few questions that he had. Um, are, Steve, are you prepared to answer those questions this evening? Or yeah, would you like sure. to research and provide a written response? Uh, I can I can certainly provide a written response if you folks would would like it. I think that I can um, address the the questions uh, tonight, um, and hopefully that that answers what uh, what his concerns are or, or what he's he's brought up. Um, but if there's anything you know that I need to do to to better flesh that out, I'm happy to do that. Um, I can run. I can run down through them, just kind of in in order, if that's all right. All right. Well, why don't we first see um, board members? Do you have any other questions about this? Oh, Bill. Sorry. Go ahead, Bill. Um, just quick question about the the soil sample. Um, how far down did you go for the for the sample? Approximately six inches. Six inches. And how much? Um, do we know how much soil is going to be dug up as part of this project to lay down the turf? My understanding is around 12 to 18 inches. Okay. So there's still more, you know, I, I don't know if, if we want to make a recommendation to go down deeper just to see what else is down there. Now that we know that, you know, at least at that top level is something. But I, I think, if, and this gets a little bit into the, the MCP follow-up that needs to happen is is I'm I'm pretty sure that we're going to have to be out there and do some more soil sampling, look deeper. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that we'll need to put in a uh, monitoring well or two to look at the groundwater in this area. Um, so I think there will be some of that that data will be gathered from a constructability standpoint, and I, and I don't wanna speak for, for Gail, so, so they can certainly uh, uh, weigh in also, um, but to take out a foot of material versus six inches, um, you're, you're just not really gonna be able to segregate that very well. Um, so you kind of defer to, well, we know we've got this with these concentrations here. And really, the the concentrations that we're seeing, if they they really are background as as we are are suggesting, it's been deposited there through uh, air deposition and rain, um, and even potentially from materials that, frankly, folks wear and use out on the field. That was the only question I had. Thank you. Sorry, other questions, Amy, you have one? Yeah, I guess my one question, you said prior to delivery of the turf material to have it tested. I was wondering if you do it prior to purchase of the material, 
just because if you tested it and found out the PFAS level was really high, you'd want to know probably before you purchase it so you could just purchase a different one? Uh, I believe so. And, and Kathleen or, or Matt, maybe you can, can speak about it. But oftentimes the specifications that are put forth are that prior to accepting the materials that these test results are received. And uh, when I've been involved with a couple of these projects, they actually manufacture the material, uh, package it, set it aside, and wait at and it waits at the plant until the test results are back. Then they ship it. You ex you accept it. They're kind of like when you get a, sh a shipment from UPS. You know, you make sure that it hasn't been damaged in shipping and that it actually is what you've ordered. And then it's something that they that they the contractors could then say we'd like to have our payment for these materials. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, Thank so are we, is the follow-up report on the PF, PFAS concentration on the synthetic turf playing field still outstanding? Or that's what you just, you covered that as well? I covered that as well, yes. Okay, thank you. So I'm just looking, Lori, I know you had some comments on your document. Um, is there anything you wanted to speak to that you sent in your um, planning director review? Um, so originally I was concerned that the first version of the letter didn't address everything that was in the contract. So Steve and I had a phone call and I explained to him what, what I was uh, looking for and he revised the letter to include that information. So I'm satisfied with the um, amount of information that was submitted. Um, but of course, uh, Vinny submitted his list of uh, questions. So I'd be curious as to those responses. Okay. Um, I also just wanna, you had another comment in here about the safety data sheets for the tennis court and track of just the materials, the plexichrome. And I know you sent us some documentation on that as well. Is that anything you wanna speak to um, while we're talking about some of these reports or? We had followed up with Lori um, yesterday and identified that the um, it was regard to the surfacing for the tennis courts, which really is the paint that goes on the top coat and it is identified and we highlighted it's an occupational hazard if there is any associated with fumes and such when they put it in, but it, once it's dried in that it's not a um, an issue and that's what was on the, the data safety sheets, which okay. we, we re-highlighted and gave back to Lori. Yes, yes, and uh, I was satisfied with the response. Okay, so yep, I see that here for inhalation exposure only. Okay, so to, to look at that quickly, I think it's a quicker issue. Any questions from the board on the plexichrome materials or the response on that? I, I just have some questions as far as, as informational. Are these levels do they tend to be seasonal or affected by weather? If it's raining, is it worse, better? Or, um, and are they cumulative? So once they're there, they're in the soil and would your, would the turf be adding to them as far as levels are concerned? That's a great question. Um, the, these compounds are somewhat sticky to uh, organic matter and, and soils. 
but they do um, leach. And so knowing that we've got rainwater coming and uh, previous materials on those soils, I wouldn't really expect much change from a seasonal standpoint. Um, maybe on a multi-year to multi-year standpoint, you might see a buildup or a little letdown. Theoretically, some of these compounds should be decreasing over time because mm -hmm. they've been phased out of use. But there, there's, as I said, there's thousands of them. They phased some out and brought in some new ones. Um, from the standpoint of, of how additive would the turf be, from what I've seen of the analyses that have been done on the materials in 2019, 2020, and what I've seen for other studies that are out there, uh, Martha's Vineyard had a very detailed study done with lots of different methodologies of digesting and, and analyzing the, the turf. The concentrations that we see here are, and that we see that would be associated with the turf are in essence the same. So there might be some added, obviously if there's something coming off the turf, you've brought that turf in. Mm. but it's got a similar concentration to soil that you might bring in um, or soil because that it's in that background. Know. So it, it is additive, but we don't believe that the amount that it would add is really measurable. When you look at the soils or the, you know, where the runoff would be in the soils, that it would be any different than if you analyze the rain itself mm -hmm. or analyze the runoff from the existing field. So the soil that would be removed would basically not be, um, it wouldn't be more than bringing in more than what's already there effectively. Effectively, yes. Yeah. Um, and do these fields typically have over monitoring over the years or is that not typical you know this is this is really a pretty fresh question that's being asked about turf fields and i would say that that i don't know of any ones that have been monitored consistently over time um to see if there's any changes mm -hmm. uh it so i'm not I'm not aware of a monitoring program that's been put in place yet. Okay. And one last question is, uh, I think you alluded to this, is that some of these materials and compounds are being phased out and certainly Massachusetts is seemingly on, on the front end of some of that. So if we're to put in a field that has all of this and then in six years, it's not supposed to be, are we stuck having to replace that? Is that a possibility? I, I don't think so. I don't want to put I don't, yeah, I, do. I, I, my, my crystal balls as fuzzy as yeah. everybody else's. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, what we don't see detectable levels in the material, you know, there's, there's no reported concentration in the turf materials. Um, so, but again, they're, you know, 
they don't see quite down as low as we can in the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't foresee that they would need to come out and here's why the concentrations that we see out there in the soils that are there right now and the maximum amounts that I've seen in, in turf samples over the years are hundreds of times less than what would be of a concern for people actually playing on the fields for dermal contact or breathing in dust and those things. So we don't see that there's a risk to users. We haven't seen data that indicates this is going to leach the same or as much as what we see out there as background. And so we don't see an increased risk associated with this for exposure to PFAS. Um, and I haven't seen where we can, where we've seen measurable changes or amounts of these compounds in runoff or in soils adjacent to these fields. So I really don't think that they would say you have to take these out. Um, but you know, that's, that's my opinion of the future based on our understanding of risk and what's there today. And so you were saying that in some places you're seeing it, you are seeing a decrease in these PFAS because they, some of them are being eliminated. We're, but- we're seeing evidence that the amount of particular PFAS that we see in the environment and in particular in people's bloodstreams are going down because those compounds have been phased out in the United States. Um, so they aren't being used as much. So we're seeing this decrease in, in what's, the first thing we're seeing it in really is people's bloodstreams because that's, that's what we've been monitoring the most, I think. Mm-hmm. The, the tough thing about these is they may not be making those four anymore, but they've got eight or 10 other PFAS that they've substituted with. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we're seeing some decreases in, in blood levels of some. Of some, but. But un- until we stop using these and making them, mm-hmm. we're going to see them in our environment for a long time. And as you said, there are a lot of states out there that are bringing in bans on food packaging materials, uh, consumer products, carpets, and all sorts of things saying, we just, we don't want to see any PFAS, uh, which is frankly, really tough to do (laughs) because every plastic has PFAS, it has a PFAS in it. Mm -hmm. It might not be the ones, you know, the the 24 we're looking at are the ones that folks think are the most, that that can get into people the easiest. Um, So it's, it's complicated to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's all the questions I had. Thank you. Appreciate it. Sure. Additional board questions? Lori, any other staff questions? Um, Okay, so looking at uh, the conservation agent's questions here, do you wanna go through, he's highlighted his questions, maybe something we can go through. If you feel like you're ready to respond to, if you don't, that's okay. 
I can, I can actually, I can absolutely tell you what I, uh, um, what my thoughts are. And, um, and if we need to expand on those, I can, I can do that in, in writing as needed. Okay. Um, the first one is, is regarding the, um, I think it's basically regarding the fact that these are historical tests, not tests on the materials that will actually be coming to the property. And I, uh, I agree that, that these are historical tests and that, that my opinion is you should request that you get tests of the materials that are actually going to come out to your property. That will give you the best surety. Uh, the next one uh, talks about performing new tests on the, the new materials um, and asks about, is it even possible to have PFAS-free materials? And my understanding at this point in time is no, it's not. You can't have PFAS-free uh, synthetic turf blades. Um, to be honest with you, you can't have PFAS free any extruded plastic or plastic film. They all use what is defined as PFAS as part of their process. Now, again, whether they could actually leach or be these measurable known compounds from all the testing that we've seen these slip agents that they use in order to make the plastic move into the molds and things, they don't get broken down into these compounds. Um, now, the tests that have been performed and provided aren't the ones that would tell you that. That's based on my knowledge from the uh, Martha's Vineyard testing and some other test results that I've seen. So PFAS free isn't something that, that you can get as a plastic, frankly. Um, so that's, that's that answer, unfortunately. Um, the next question is about analytical methods. And he references uh, method 1633. And that is a draft EPA method that labs are performing. And it does report a few more compounds than what our analysis did. The analysis we performed, though, is the same as what these the materials that were provided to us were. It's the same. Some of them are at the same lab, um, and they're by the same methods that have been used. So 1633 is a method that could be used on these materials. Um, we used what we thought was the most similar to the analyses that were done on, on uh, in 2019-2020. I haven't used method 1633 much, so I can't really opine on whether I think that would provide you with different data. Um, it does identify a few more individual compounds, but again, the six that are regulated by the state, we see with the method that we used, and frankly, the method we're using is accepted by the MCP folks and by the folks who are actually regulating 
these materials in the environment. So I, I hear what he's saying, but I think our methodology is appropriate um, and, and can be used for, for what we're intending here. The next question is regarding the de minimis exemption for PFAS, which I believe is about what's reported in the materials in your safety data sheets and all. Removing that is a proposed uh, is a proposed change to the regulations. To my knowledge, that hasn't been approved yet. But again, doing the actual testing down to the levels that we're talking about, those part per trillion, part per billion levels, um, is going to find whether these compounds are there or not. Um, that really, I think, is that question is really about the, the data sheets that you'd be provided. Um, regarding the sampling methods, that's the next one regarding the equipment that was used. Um, oh, I'm sorry, this is potential sources. Um, asking about what are the potential sources for the PFAS that we've identified. Uh, he brings up um, pesticides and other chemicals used at the site. Um, those are potentially sources of PFAS, as is the rain. Um, my understanding is these soils may have come from off-site, that this isn't the, the natural soil contour out there, that these fields were made. Um, there's a potential that PFAS were at the location where these soils came from. I would be surprised if they weren't. As I said, they're everywhere. Um, going through the MCP process is going to help try and define what the source of these compounds are and, frankly, how, how are they distributed around the, the fields there and, and the area in general. Uh, the next question is about cross-contamination during sampling. Um, we are very, very careful and very aware of the, of the cross-contamination concerns when collecting samples. As I said, these compounds are in everything from cosmetics to deodorant, uh, the soaps that you wash your clothes in. Um, they're in lots of things. Uh, and we are very careful with the materials that we use to sample. We have a standard operating procedure that discusses the types of clothing you can wear, the type of gloves that you need to wear, the types of soil sample equipment you can have. And then in between each one of these sample locations, we actually decontaminate uh, what we're sampling with. So we wash it down, wipe it off, clean it with, with a known PFAS-free soap and PFAS-free water so that we aren't cross-contaminating from one site to the other. Uh, looking at the data that we collected, I believe that our data is usable and that there was not cross-contamination associated with it. Um, next is uh, with regard to, was a check of any private potable wells in the area completed? that might change the designation of the groundwater beneath the site. Uh, we did not look for any private wells in the area. Um, we relied actually on the uh, overlay districts and where uh, their definitions of 
the groundwater um, statuses. Uh, there's some discussion about uh, carcinogens is the next paragraph. Um, California's Act 65. And then the, the last highlighted area um, is discussing, again, what are the, the most current analysis methods and parameters. As I, as I said before, there are there is this method, draft method 1633, um, but I didn't feel that that would give us directly comparable data. And 1633, to my knowledge, is not being utilized and recognized by the state of Massachusetts yet. So we're sticking with what we know is in the MCP. Um, and um, does the condition that we talk about uh, take into account um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire and Martha's Vineyard studies? And I would say, yes, that is part of my general knowledge. I've looked at those um, in great detail. Uh, so my knowledge about artificial turf materials in general is informed by that. Um, and, you know, it, again, he, he kind of throws out the PFAS-free moniker, and th that is not something that, that we believe is, is achievable uh, with, with plastics, frankly. And even with uh, natural materials, uh, even some of the infill materials that are, are used, I would expect to see that there's some PFAS concentrations in that due to them being naturally out in the environment. So PFAS free, uh, no, but without the individual PFASs that we can identify by lab analysis, we do see that you can get, get those materials from manufacturers. And then in your memo, he, so he references conditions that you've suggested. Where are those, where's that list of conditions that you suggested? I'm just having trouble finding it. Uh, at, the, at the revised uh, memo that I sent out on the last page of the text, which is page four, there's a subparagraph there that says prior to delivery of the turf material at the project site the contractor shall. And this is some, some pat language that we've utilized in our specifications. But we mentioned it might be prior to accepting versus delivery. Yeah, well, yes, I mean, in my understanding is that you aren't accepting the material until after it's delivered and, and, and physically inspected. Mm -hmm. So if, if they get you the data before they even ship it, then you know that that lot is something that you want to have shipped and accept. So I was just thinking we changed the, the condition to prior to accepting. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Um, any other, based on those answers, um, any other questions from the board? Okay, any other questions from staff? 
Um, I will actually open it up to public comment at this point. Um, if there's any comments from the public, if you want to raise your hand and speak. I don't see any public comments at this time. Um, so we looked at the uh, planning director's letter, only a couple comments there, the info on the plexichrome, the soil sampling and analysis, Vinny's comments. Um, we had, there are no public comments at this time. We did receive an email from George Campbell that he submitted additional materials on turf safety and some of his concerns um, attached quite a few materials there. There, Did the board receive that and get to look at that? I think that wasn't related to environment. It was more about the um, field safety for the kids playing sports, et cetera. Um, which, which one was that? This was um, George Campbell sent an email to the board. Let me see if I can see it for you. Um, it was right after our last hearing for, um, it looks like February 14th. So it was injuries related to turf, um, incidents of knee accidents. I don't um, think I saw that one actually. Oh, here, let me forward this. George Campbell. It's actually dated February 1st. Oh. Okay, I'm going to send that over. And it included a bunch of articles as attachments. I did not see that, so I'm not sure where that went to. That's okay. I just sent it again, so you have it. Thank you. Um, and I think what we discussed at the last hearing is that... Um, we don't necessarily determine make the determination of whether or not it's grass or turf. Mm -hmm. So that's something that's not our purview. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I do see we have a comment here. Um, Jean Cahill. Hi, Jean. If you just want to say your name and address. Your thing, Jean Cahill went there. Um, just wondering if crumb rubber is going to be one of the components of the turf and why only PFAS and not metals, phthalates and PAHs, polycyclic aromatics are being analyzed for. Um, any comments on that, Stephen? We, or Kathleen, go right ahead. I, I'll just say um, we're proposing a um, more natural infill material. It's called Envirofill. It's a coated sand um, due to concerns that, um, that are perceived with crumb rubber. Um, which was the school's decision um, to go more, as they call, environmentally friendly, and um, which is what we also provided the testing, um, the past testing to um, Weston and Sampson on um, to analyze that. And just to reiterate, our specification um, requires, um, you know, limits requires no lead. Um, we have various limits within our um, our spec that addresses metals and such. Anything else on that, Jean? Um, I guess volatiles, are volatiles also considered? I know that I've heard um, of people, you know, kids on fields, it, the fields get very hot because they're synthetic. And when they heat, they can off gas and it can actually be like a, a naphthalene or a, a very strong volatile. Any comments uh, on that? 
all I, it, some of that was back in the past when the crumb rubber, um, I think we discussed this once before, how the crumb rubber um, in, its, in its day, probably 10 years or so ago, was not really restricted and would come in, um, not as the quality that is specified today. Um, and also just to let you know, we will be providing what we call quick connects in the field. So when the field does warm up on a hot summer day that they'll be able to water it down to keep it cool um, to prevent anything like that. But we don't anticipate or we have not um, had that type of um, issue at least recently and you know, in the past couple of years. Thank you. Great, thanks, Jean. Any other comments or questions there? Okay, so are there any other outstanding items for this? I don't have anything else that we needed to cover. And it sounds like, Lori, um, for the conditions that were shared um, by Weston and Sampson, is that something that you have? Yes. Okay. So if you look at the draft decision that I emailed today, mm -hmm. um, there are two conditions uh, having to do with uh, Steve LaRose's report. The first condition is letter B. It has to do with the PFAS exceedances and the need to report to MassDOT within 120 days. And then the second one uh, is exactly what he had just mentioned. It was at the bottom of his letter and that's letter D. And it says prior to delivery of the turf material. So if you wanna change that wording, then I'd be happy to do so. Lori, I just wanted to check that maybe you misspoke. Uh, we need to notify the mass DEP, <laughs> not DOT. I thought so. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I wrote Mass DEP. I, th I thought you probably I just, did. Uh, I just deal with Mass DOT. So okay. that's probably what happened there. <laughs> yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> okay. Um, are there any other... Did, first of all, did the board um, get a chance to read through all the conditions? Yep. Okay. What are there other conditions uh, based on the uh, last couple of times that we met and discussed? I think we're only waiting for the PFAS reports, at least in my opinion. Which PFAS report? The ones that we got. Uh, which added those other two conditions. So I think, in my opinion, that's what we're waiting for. Oh, okay. So you, and you think that's satisfied at this point? I do, if everybody else does. Um, do, do we think, did Fred review these reports as well, Lori? Is there anything, um, I know he's on vacation, so I don't want to preclude him from not being able to um, No, I, I asked, so Vinny is also an engineer. So because uh, Fred is on vacation, he's been on vacation since last Thursday, I asked uh, Vinny to do a review in his stead. Um, could we put a condition of um, Vinny's 
but I, I don't want to word it this way, but something that gets across that I, I'd like for him to be satisfied with these answers. I mean, Stephen's obviously an expert on this, but what his answers, I wouldn't necessarily know if that's answering what Vinny was asking, unless you are a good proxy to speak for that. Um. I could put in a uh, condition that says uh, prior to construction activity, um, the applicant shall submit uh, written responses to the letter. Uh, and then I, of course I can specify the letter. Uh, how does the board and feel about something like that? To the satisfaction of, um, you know, Vincent Fignali or to the planning board. Right, not only just writing re written responses, but um, maybe prior to construction activity, you have the applicant shall attend the pre-construction meeting and it includes Vinny. Yeah, that's already in there. Yeah, it's but I'm wondering all... if that could be where you, and he answers all the questions, you know, where his answers are satisfied. Oh, you don't think make it a separate condition? Do you not like? Yeah, it? we could. Yeah. Yeah, we have it's something we've already. Oh, I'm sorry, we've already got the land disturbance <laughs> permit, and I know one of Vinny's conditions, and that was, you know, the pre-construction meeting that they be in attendance. Oh, okay. Well, is the board okay with a separate condition that just prior to construction, a written response should be submitted? And accepted. Like, what if Vinny doesn't agree with something? Like, even though it's written, so would it have to be Vinny's questions are? I don't know. How do we add into the condition that? They well, Laura, you're on the. Laura, you're on the. I, I could say uh, prior to construction activity, the applicant shall submit written responses that are satisfactory to the to the town engineer. So that way, Fred is kind of the deciding yeah. factor. And what if he doesn't decide? I'm sure he will, but I'm just throwing out that scenario. Then they'll work together to get the answers needed. Yeah, we've had that before. I think we've had that as a condition before, and then they just work together to get it resolved. Um, I'm trying to think if we've said it any other way. Does that work? Any board thoughts on that or comments? All I'm going to get is probably a two for the detail, because it's going to be more of a little bit there. Yeah. Okay. What that is. An applicant is it are the current conditions, and if we that with that addition and also the addition of testing new materials, um, any comments on that from you or concerns there? Okay. So for the site, oh, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Carrie. I have one other question that might may or may not be able to uh, be added in, um, but. You know, given the concern for PFAS in general and where the atmosphere is going, 
is there does it make sense to just have some monitoring done regularly throughout the course of the next the life of the field um, so Stephen, what does that look like to continue to uh, that's that's a real tough one because what we have to do is as as you've alluded to is tease out what's falling on the field from the atmosphere what is being used on the field and maybe contributing mm. and then what's actually running off of the field so it's multiple samples and in order to really get to the get to a scientifically statistical kind of surety that yes we see increases that are associated with the turf or no we don't see increases you're you know each one of these samples is about five hundred dollars a piece mm -hmm. and we need to figure out how best to you know when do we get out there to collect these samples is it during a rain event those kinds of things it becomes pretty complicated okay. to try and tease it out particularly when we're talking about background that we that we anticipate to see anyway would you expect the background to be elevated without a turf field or wouldn't that stay pretty constant at this point or can't it they'll stay i like to i like the phrase pretty constant yeah <laughs> because that that really you know that in in this kind of realm the difference between a result of one and two doesn't indicate to me twice as much right that's about this the right range one in 20 one in a hundred we've got a real change there so we're we're trying to make these changes become statistically predictable and i'm I don't know as if we have enough, frankly, information about rainfall and those things for the mm -hmm. past years and into the future. I mean, we we would be developing the science, frankly, to do that. Do we need a condition that um, the site plan is... Um, it, it's contingent on town meeting vote because they can't go forward with the site plan approval if it if it doesn't pass town meeting. Okay. I mean, I guess it could if they made an amendment to take out the turf field, but if they're unable to secure the funding at town meeting, then I can't imagine that the project can go forward. Okay. Okay. Is there any other information that the board needs or can we go down to site plan approval criteria and are we prepared to vote or do further deliberate in the vote or, or is there any additional information that we need or conditions for discussion? There are three waivers that they're requesting. Oh, yes. Okay. So, um, the three waivers on the table are the 
uh, waiver from planning board rules and regs, section 72C19, that's a requirement to submit a landscape plan. There's a waiver um, 7.2DA, that's a requirement to submit a detailed traffic impact analysis. Um, and a waiver from submission of the application fee. So those are the three waivers. I believe we discussed all three and board comments on these waivers where we came to. I think landscape plan we were thinking of waiving because it was gonna be done by the students. Is that what I remember? We agreed to um, maintain or replace you know, the brick. I know the, some, someone had brought up the concern with the brick walkway having been done recently and we're gonna try to, you know, remove those and then put them back, you know, as close as possible. And then we have to kind of reconfigure that garden area a little bit. Um, and the, you know, the hope was that the school, you know, that the students would, you know, take care of that. Okay. Um, for the traffic, I think we had talked about some conditions there. Yep. We have the conditions listed in the decision about the traffic flow out to Route 20 yep. versus going out to Bartlett Street. And then we were going to, I think this already happened. I just wanted to make sure. Some of the things we discussed, I think we just asked to be, it was be submitted in writing. And was that, Lori, that was all taken care of, anything we wanted in writing, like some sort of construction plan and all of that. Um, the flow of construction trucks. I think we talked about making sure that was in writing. Um, yeah, so it was my understanding that the agreement would be that there would be no deliveries or removal of construction materials during student drop-off and pickup times and all construction related traffic would use Route 20. Okay, so we're not waiting for any additional information on that. And we have thought, well, yes, we wanted to make sure too that it would happen during the, students wouldn't even be in school, theoretically. This would happen over the summer. As soon as the students left the building, pretty much starting the project and be done by the time they come back in the fall. Was that the, the hope? That's that's the hope we would we'd like to start a little sooner. Like I said, that's why we talked about if there were going to be students like that last month. Um, you know, if they were to start early June, obviously your seniors will be gone. You'll have less kids on campus, but we would coordinate all deliveries and such. You know, around you know, like I said, pick up drop off time, or if there's any other time the school designates. You know, we coordinate all that with the contractor. But the intent is that the majority of the work will be done, you know, from when school's out through the fall and hope that we have good weather and everything else all summer so everything gets done. Okay. Um, so really our traffic concerns are around the construction period, not necessarily the project itself. There's not an ongoing, it's just a usual school traffic. So that's, I think that makes sense then. The traffic impact is really just construction related and we have conditions that help um, alleviate that. So I think that was discussed. Okay, so any comments on those waivers, concerns? Okay, so why don't we um, look at the, go through our decision criteria for the site plan? I um, will actually need you to make uh, motions. 
to grant oh, those no. waivers. Oh, okay. okay. So um, do I don't have to close the public hearing first? You do. Yeah. Okay. So we don't we discuss our criteria before we close the public hearing? Uh, you can, if you'd like. Oftentimes it happens after the public hearings close, but uh, it's to your pleasure, whichever okay. one you prefer. Um, well, I'm just wondering if we had any follow-up items, the hearing would be closed and we wouldn't be able to engage with the applicant for anything further. So my only thought. That's a good point. Does the board have a preference to keep it open while we do criteria or just close mm -hmm. it? I'm fine with keeping it open. Okay. All right. Um, so we'll go through the criteria. We'll close the public hearing. Um, we have our motions for the waivers and then whether or not we approve the site plan. Um, and Lori, at this point where we stand with the added conditions, what do we have A through, what are our conditions? It must be different. A through R. So that includes the new condition that we just discussed. Okay, great. Um, okay, so in terms of the site plan meeting all the requirements of the bylaw, does everyone have their criteria? So criteria number one, um, given location, type, and extent of land use proposed by the proponent, the design of building form, building location, egress points, grading, and other elements of the site plan could not be reasonably altered to, number one, reduce clearing and grading on the site or reduce the volume of cut and fill, number of removed trees, length of removed or altered stone walls, area of wetland vegetation displaced, extent of stormwater flow increase from the site, soil erosion, or threat of air or water pollution. Agree with the conditions we've added. I think the conditions helped satisfy that. Yep. Okay. Um, could not be reasonably altered to reduce the risk of groundwater contamination from on-site wastewater disposal systems or operations on the premises involving use storage, handling, or containment of hazardous substances. Agree. Agree. Mm -hmm. Improve pedestrian, bicycle, or vehicular safety both on the site and aggressing from it. Agree. Agree. Improve <laughs> access to each structure for fire and other emergency service equipment. Agree. Agree. Um, reduce visual intrusion by controlling the visibility of parking, storage, or other outdoor service areas viewed from public ways or premises or premises as re excuse me, I'm having trouble here. Public ways or premises as residentially used or zoned. Agree. Agree. Achieve greater consistency and compatibility with the surrounding area as to building design or scale or site design. Agree. Agree. Uh, reduce glare from headlights, reduce light trespass from luminaires onto adjacent lots or the street or light overspill into the night sky. Agree. Agree. Um, I just wanna look at the conditions for a second. Did we do any sort of um, night um, night lighting or anything over there? The dark skies? Yeah. Did we do that? I think we did. Did you? In the site plan, we had the photometrics plan. Correct. 
There it okay, thank you. So I, I agree then. Thank you for clarifying. Oh, did the rest of the board agree? Yep. Yep. Does it state on the um, site plan that it's dark skies compliant? I'm just trying to see, because you're right, Carrie, if it doesn't state it in the site plan, we can put it on as a condition. Is that on there. the site they it's are using LED lights. Is it dark skies compliant though? No, because it's not the right colors. It, it is. It's in our specification from the, the lighting. I can, I don't know if it, I don't think it's stated directly on the illumination plan, but it is dark mm -hmm. sky lighting. I wonder if we should just add it as a condition. Mm -hmm. I think so. Okay, so Lori, that brings us A through S. Yep, I would be happy to add that. Okay, great, thank you. Um, avoid the removal, so um, could not be reasonably altered to avoid the removal or disruption of historic, traditional, or significant structures or architectural elements. Agree. Agree. I just have one thing to add about the lighting too. We did have a discussion that lights out um, we're not putting a time for lights out on our end because the school already has one that was already discussed. I think the superintendent's nodding his head yes. There's a pretty strict time lights out. Okay. Great. Thank you. What time is that? I don't know if Greg Martino. Do you know what time it's at? I think it's 10.30. Oh, okay. I want to think it was earlier. It used to be like 9.30 or 10.30 or 10, because I think that I've been at football games where the lights go out <laughs> and the game's not over. <laughs> well, we don't want the but kids I don't know if we have to make a condition on lights out or if it's satisfied by the school policy. Or lights, uh, or our condition could be um, lights out in um, compliance with school policy. policy. Yep, that makes sense. Would that make sense? To just make it whatever the school policy is, that's when lights out would be? Right. Okay. Um, and then finally, reduce obstruction of scenic views from publicly accessible locations. Agree. 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 Okay, there, there are no variances are required here. I don't think, no, so not applicable. Um, okay, so uh, with that, is there, it sounds like overall the site plan meets the criteria, unless board members have any other comments or concerns where the site plan does not meet our criteria? No, but I definitely want to make it clear before it goes to town meeting that approval of the site plan doesn't mean that we're approving turf or grass. It's just that the site plan meets the criteria. So how do you how are you proposing we do that? I don't know. I don't know if it can be part of the motion. I don't think it can be, is what I'm told. Because we don't want I just don't want it to go to town meeting and say, oh, the planning board approved the turf fields when we're really just approving the site plan. If the turf field should be um, approved at town meeting, then the site plan is presented with the conditions and criteria satisfy 
or the conditions satisfy the criteria. I don't know if I could say, should, should the residents of town meeting vote to approve the turf fields, then the site plan as presented is approved. Well, we have here, it's a public hearing for the replacement of two existing athletic fields, but it doesn't necessarily say what the replacement is. And I don't know if this matters or not, but it's so we are doing site plan approval for replacement of two existing athletic fields, track, nine tennis courts, seating, et cetera. So there's not really a specification either way. Except for in the site plan. That is Madam great. Chair, if I may, I, I don't believe you can make your approval contingent upon the vote of town meeting under this application, but you certainly could include in your decision the statement that it's the board's comment or however you want to describe it, that the site plan approval is not an endorsement of a particular uh, playing surface. Okay. Is that your, is, does that satisfy your concern, Amy? Yes, do others feel the same way? I just feel like that's not our decision. That's yes. the resident's decision. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's not part of the motion, it's just part of the decision. Is that something we can add, Lori? Yep. Okay. Okay, any other comments? All right, is there a motion to close the public hearing? So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. Uh, is there a motion to approve? The public hearing is now closed. Is there a motion to approve the applicant's request for a waiver from submission of the application fee? So moved. Second? Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. Is there a motion to approve the applicant's request for a waiver from Planning Board Rules and Regs Section 7.2 C19 requirement to submit a landscape plan? So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. Motion to approve the applicant's request for a waiver from Planning Board Rules and Regs Section 7.2 DA requirement to submit a detailed traffic impact analysis? So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. Uh, motion to grant site plan approval for the property located at 79 Bartlett Street in accordance with findings of fact one through seven and subject to conditions A through T. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Millie? Aye. Bill? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. Okay, great. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Why don't we take a um, quick bio break for the board and um, all the participants? So, what if we come back and for our last hearing of the evening at 8 40 p.m.? Does that work? Does that give everyone enough time for a quick? Yep. Okay, so we will come back. We're going to take a quick break and be back at 8.40 sharp.
Okay, I think we just have Amy to come back and then we'll bring in our next hearing. Next on the agenda, we have the continued public hearing for the property known as zero on 301 Bartlett Street, parcel H for site plan approval and a groundwater protection overlay district special permit for development of a distribution center and warehouse project. So why don't we bring in the team for that? Okay. And I think we have a couple of new members that were mentioned that are joining. I think was Scott Weiss one of them. Let's see Israel, David. Is Kelly Kelly Jordan Price also on your team? Was that another one or no? Yes. Please. Okay. Do I have everyone? Looks like everyone here on your team. Or are you, is there anyone else in the audience? There's a phone number that I don't know if belongs to your team. I think yeah, it looks like everyone. I think we've got everybody. Okay, great. Welcome. So, and I think all board members are back. Millie, Bill, Anthony, Amy. Yep, everyone's here. So why don't we get started? Um, thanks for your patience. I have um, some things that have come through. I just want to make sure everybody has a copy of, and then we, I think the only thing we have left is to just resolve our conditions. And then if there's anything else, I know you invited new team members tonight. Is there anything you wanted to speak to or talk about? No, not, not right up front. You can, um, I'm sure you're gonna review some of the materials the board has received. Sure. Okay, so a couple of things that since we last met, we received some emails and some additional information. So we did receive, um, Attorney Donahue, you sent over a letter from the Mass Historical Commission letter and um, confirming there are no adverse effects on the Aqueduct Historic District. So the board received that. Did everyone on the board get that letter? If I say, if I um, mention something that either the applicant or board didn't receive, just let me know and I'll be happy to share that. Um, we received an email from Manny Lopez um, sharing um, his concerns over only conducting a static load analysis on the aqueduct and whether or not that meant um, would apply if there were 18 wheeler traveling on the aqueduct. Um, we received a lengthy letter from John. We received a couple of lengthy letters. Um, we received a letter from John Wickstead um, with a couple of concerns. There were two issues outlined in the email from Mr. Wickstead. One was about the proximity to the residential property of the project. Um, he wanted to mention, um, in his estimation, it's not 700 feet away. The residential property is less than 100 feet from the proposed parking lot. The building itself is within 200 feet of the residential property and asked about light, noise, trucks, building, and snow plows, whether it will be visible and easily heard from 100 feet away. Um, let's see. Looking at, I think, sent some maps, looking at the town GIS map that you could see 18 Starbrook Lane property line is less than 100 feet from the proposed parking lot. 127 Bartlett Street is 275 feet from the lot within 400 feet of the building. Um, let's see, thought it was large for the being immediately adjacent to the residential lots. 
Um, pointed out decision criteria number five and seven, reducing visual intrusion and reducing light trespass, and did not think the site plan conformed to that criteria. I'm worried about the winter when vegetation is down. There's thought there's 12 residential homes within direct line of sight to the parking lot um, where the density of light and traffic would be the worst. Thought there'd be issues with traffic noise, plowing noise, headlights, et cetera. Submitted two different maps to show um, the current location of the parking lot. And I believe looks like moving the parking lot. Um, question about moving the parking lot. Um, let's see. Thought the building was too large, et cetera. So there's that. We received an email from Janine Callahan with some pictures of continued issues with 18 wheelers doing U-turns in the neighboring roadways. Um, another email from Jack Wickstead with some photographs of lights at night from it looks to be the edge of the property or the entrance to the aqueduct to the nearby residential area where you can, she took a couple of pictures of what the lights look like there. A letter, a lengthy letter from um, Jean Cahill. And this was in reference to some of the concerns with the environmental uh, phase one report, um, just continuing with the VOCs, I think, she had some questions. I don't know if board members would want to ask. It was a, um, I can't read the letter. It's very lengthy, but if the board wants to speak to that, um, we can certainly speak to that. Um, an email from Janine Callahan, impact on residents with lighting, a request about the parking lot. Um, we got a review from Mark Bartlett from Santac, um, and I'll pull that up in a little bit too for us to look at what his recommendations were. Um, I think that's it. I didn't receive any other information since we last met. Um, did I miss anything that the applicant submitted or anyone else submitted? Okay. Um, there are a couple of things that I wanted to make sure were part of the public record. So, um, there was something that I had said before, which was the Bartlett Street Road Safety Audit that was conducted by CMRPC, which is our regional planning agency. The phase one environmental site assessment um, that we've been referencing and the um, traffic mitigation packet that was from the DPW sent to the town administrator. I just want to make sure everybody had a copy of that. I don't know if the applicant does it or not. So Lori, if anybody doesn't have a copy of that, if we just share that. What was the last document you just referred to? It's the traffic mitigation packet from the Scott Shop Rentier DPW to the town administrator. So we can share that with you, obviously, if you don't have it. Okay, did I miss anything? I, the, the only thing that wasn't in your litany um, uh, was there were um, some questions posed uh, between the meetings uh, through the planner uh, that we replied to uh, questions presented by board members. Oh, great. Okay. Um, why don't we speak to that as well then? Um,
Okay, so Laurie, um, when we get to it, if you want to speak to that one, that would be great. Why don't we start? Actually, why don't we start there? Do you want to speak to the, the answers that were received from the applicant on any questions that went out? I think I have the so many emails. Just bear with me a minute. No problem. I know one question I asked was about the lighting because um, Attorney Donahue had mentioned, I had asked about the difference between regular lighting and safety lighting. But I think the answer I got was it depends on the applicant or whoever's gonna buy the property. Like there was no real answer in my opinion to that question. I, I, it, through through you, Madam Chair, if I could. <clears throat> I think the the question was answered. Um, but the specifics are not available. Um, but what was indicated in the response given is that there is a noticeable and evident uh, reduction in the uh, amount of light that is controlled as you requested. It's controlled by controls uh, by computer controls. That's the timing during non-operational hours. The specific lumen of that light is something that is often determined by a tenant and their particular needs. And as I indicated in the reply, uh, in many cases, the insurer of the tenant also, it gets involved. Okay. I guess I was looking for um, the actual numbers, but there are no actual numbers. That's correct. Okay, were there any other questions on there? I'd have to open it. I think Laura said she had it. Uh, I have it. Oh, great. Uh, so one of the questions pertain to the compact spaces. Uh, so in his response, Mark Donahue had mentioned that our zoning bylaw does provide for compact spaces when there are large uh, parking lots. And he quoted the specific language from our zoning bylaw. It says in parking lots containing more than 50 parking spaces, 10% of the required spaces may be designed for small car or motorcycle use. Small car parking spaces shall be not less than eight feet in width, nor less than 16 feet in length. Motorcycle spaces shall be not less than four feet in width and not less, nor less than eight feet in length. And I could speak to that. Like my question was, um, when talking about the parking lot, there's an area in the front with um, a bunch of mature trees. And I had asked that the parking lot spaces be removed there. So the, um, trees could be saved. And so my question was mainly, did you go to the um, smaller compact spaces to give more space to save the trees in the front of that parking lot? That was what I was trying to ask. And it looks like online though, I mean, the smaller spaces are only smaller by like, instead of nine by 18, they're something, I think it was eight by 16. So it's not that big of a savings for the compact cars. But I don't see where 
the parking lot was pulled back at all to try to save some of the trees in the front? And that was my main question, actually. So through you, uh, Madam Chair, um, we, we actually talked about that specifically on February 18th. And um, there are other ways to try to reach what your primary concern was, which you described back then um, as a concern about uh, disruption to the root system for those trees, which are not located on the property, but actually on the abutting property. And we indicated that that was something that we could evaluate as a condition of approval. The draft conditions of approval uh, touches upon that. The draft uh, circulated by the planner uh, dated March 1st. And while we have comments to the specific language of the condition of approval, we would still see it as a condition of approval to do a full evaluation of how that area can be improved to respond to your concern. Another question, um, which I didn't ask, but wanted to ask, because I think I've asked it before, is um, there's supposed to be a 10 foot landscape buffer all the way around the parking lot. So along with asking for the spaces to be removed, that would actually give you the area for that 10 foot landscape buffer all the way around the parking lot, which when I look at the site plan right now, I don't see the 10 foot landscape buffer. And I didn't know if you could speak to that. As to that specific area, I think my previous answer stands. We're prepared to evaluate that entire area, the riprap slope to try to achieve the goal that may or may not end up adding to the landscaped area. I know as a board member, I'd like to see it before a decision's made because if we have a condition that will look into it, then I'm not sure what the actual outcome is. I think at this point, it's not time to be further revising the plan that's been before the board for a while. Right. I know this plan was revised and I got the page at the last minute. So I was hoping that to see that revision. And now I'm noticing that there really wasn't any revision made to add the 10 feet landscaping buffer around the parking lot. And I think Lori had that in one of her first planning board review letters asking about the 10 foot landscape buffer. So is there no, there is no buffer right now? There's no 10 foot landscape buffer in the current plan? Right. Okay. Not that I can say. Okay. Um, any other questions there? Um, Lori, did you have any other questions that you had sent over and received a response for, or that covers it? It covers it. Okay. Um, let's see. We also had an outstanding item. We had a letter that was sent to us. Um, we had asked Stantec to review. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, did anyone have anything else on that one? Okay. Um, to look at the phase one environmental site assessment and just advise the board on what what can be done on this. Um, so did everyone get a chance to read the letter from um, Mark Bartlett on this? I have any questions or comments? One of my comments on his letter 
was um, his one of his first statements was he's not an LSP. Mm -hmm. And he also mentioned that the, let me see, that the CVOCs might migrate to the Eastern side, but wetlands should provide a buffer. So in reading that memo to me, it was some mights and shoulds. So it didn't really make me feel any better about you know, protecting any employees that might be in that building if there are CVOCs. To me, the only way to protect them would be a condition of a groundwater condition of a groundwater test on the eastern side of the um, property to make sure there's no threat of air or water pollution to the employees that work at the warehouse. One thing I don't, oh, go ahead. Sure, go ahead. You can speak to that. Thank you. Um, th there's nothing ambiguous or unclear about Mr. Bartlett's memo. Um, in, in a fairly succinct paragraph, he concludes that the phase one does not identify any environmental issues at the Gisterra site. <clears throat> that although there's active environmental contamination away from the site, it does not, in his view, represent a threat to the upland portion of the site that's being developed. And in short, in his opinion, the Sanborn Head Phase 1 report does not identify any environmental concerns that would be increased by development of the Gutierrez property. There is nothing ambiguous about that conclusion. It hasn't been tested. It does, says it doesn't identify anything, but it hasn't been tested. So one thing that I guess the board keeps wondering who is responsible. And I think when we got, so um, Jean Cahill sent us a pretty lengthy letter. Um, I don't know if it's her profession that she looks at these things, but had similar questions. And I, I just want to read a couple of them because I feel like some of them are mine as well. You know, what responsibility does the planning board or other town boards hold for protecting Northboro's groundwater and surface water resources from CVOCs and metals intercepting zero barlet, 301 barlet and properties within the contiguous conservation restriction? Um, is, it, is there some sort of threat of migration to the drinking water or um, supply wells adjacent to barlet pond? Um, what, what are there any contaminants in the public wells? I mean, and, not, and I'm not looking for um, the applicant to test the public wells, um, but I'm just saying like questions that seem like aren't answers are who, somebody should be looking at this. Is it the Board of Health? Are they responsible for looking at the threat of indoor air, TCE exposure for the occupants of zero Bartlett and 301 Bartlett? So if there is something and the, the tenant moves in and there's some sort of exposure issue, um, I, what I don't want personally is to come to have it come back to this board that we didn't do anything. We didn't take that action that we should have taken. And I, I wish that Mark, that's one thing I wish, I don't think Mark identified, if not us, who? Can but but with, with, with all due respect, it while it, it's perhaps to others an interesting question, it has nothing to do with site plan approval that's before you this evening. Nothing. 
you're applying a non-discretionary test that's in your bylaw as to a particular site. That's what's before you. That's all you have the jurisdiction to do. That's all the court gave you the jurisdiction to do after trial. Well, criteria one at the very end, it talks about reducing of clearing and grading or threat. And then it's a lot of stuff in between or threat of air or water pollution. So, and what I see from a, from a town side too, is if someone is an employee at that building and they end up sick and they test and find CVOCs, they may go after Guterres, but they'd also go after the town in Offrow and say, you know, you knew about it, but you did nothing. And I understand that's not, I just think if there's a, a test that can be done and you don't think there are any contaminants, then why wouldn't you do it? It, it would just answer this question, then everybody could breathe a sigh of relief and we could move forward. Not before the decision, just as part of the decision. The applicant is not going to test before the decision and is not going to accept a condition that it's required to test after the condition. Okay. Um, let's see. I don't think I have, well, as part of what was submitted. So in a follow-up to what Manny Lopez had submitted, he had submitted um, the static loads, but the applicant maintained that everything that was required for this, the permit for traveling over the aqueduct had been submitted. So there was no need for anything beyond static testing. Is that what the applicant says in response to that concern? I'm not sure I follow the question. Um, so I'll bring it up actually. So it was a question from one of the abutters at the last hearing that the doc, the information submitted to get the permit, or I think it was related to the MR, MWRA permit, was it was only a static load analysis that was submitted. And the question was, could is there an issue with um, I think it was a, a fire truck and a concrete truck. Was there any other information that needed to be submitted or did the applicant feel like everything that was required was already submitted? There was no other pest or things, or I guess it would be more of, he was asking about, is there some sort of, um, if it's an 18 wheeler, does that make a difference or not? So just answering that question, I guess giving a little bit more information there. I, I, I... It, it strikes me as somewhat evident is that there would be no party more concerned about the integrity of the aqueduct than the NWRA. So whatever information it felt it needed in order to issue the permit, uh, one, I assume, was in that process. I wasn't directly involved in it. So uh, I'm very confident that the MWRA got to a level of comfort uh, as to the loads. Okay. Um, okay, any other questions? Did we want to take a look at our current conditions? I, um, Attorney Donnie, you mentioned you had some comments back on the document that was circulated to you. 
No, what, what uh, I uh, just uh, to re refresh your recollection, um, as we went through conditions uh, on the uh, meeting of the 21st, I misstated before it was the 18th, um, what we had said was to basically expedite the process. We'd hold back our comments till we had all the conditions, and then we'd ask for an opportunity to comment basically on all of it. Uh, the draft we got, um, it indi was indicated by Ms. Connors was um, more likely than not, not the complete set of conditions. So while we have uh, some comments to some of the conditions as drafted, uh, what we'd really appreciate is trying to reach closure on that this evening so we can do it all at one time and try to move this forward. Okay, um, that sounds good. We can get through the rest of the conditions then. Um, any other, what I will do before we talk through conditions, um, obviously we're still in the public hearing. Are there any comments from the public at this time? Okay, I see Janine. Hi, Janine, just your name and address. Oops, we just have you on mute there. One second. Oops. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Just your name okay. and address. Janine Callahan, 6 Sterile, Brook Lane. So I was one of the residents that had wrote in about um, the parking lot location and how it butts up right to the residential neighborhood. Um, I was the one that took some pictures from my house with that LED light that we had used um, showing how close and how intrusive the parking lot is to all of the residents here on Starbrook. Um, and in criteria five, it states, um, reduce the visual intrusion by controlling the visibility of parking. The building's 40 feet high, it's 800 feet long, and the lot should be on the opposite side of the building. And they should not be using the building, they should be using the building, sorry, as a shield from the parking lot um, and all the noise um, that's gonna happen from that parking lot that butts up right to the residential properties. It should not be entirely, <coughs> excuse me, visible from the residents. Um, to me, it's the worst location for the parking lot since it is visible from the residential homes. And I feel that it's in a complete violation of criteria five. Um, it's just a convenient location, I think, for Guterres where they put it. And the residents are asking that it's put on the other side of the, of the building. Okay, great. Thank you, Janine. Thank you. So I think we can safely assume the applicant is not willing to move the parking lot. Is that correct? Well, I, I, I think the concern of the resident needs to be put into context as to what is achieved is by the other side of the building is where the active loading docks are. The docks are only on one side of the building. Uh, from a disruption viewpoint, and the benefit of the building, it serves as basically a sound buffer of the activities uh, around and in the loading dock area. So having the loading docks blocked by the building is a preferable design than theoretically, and it is highly theoretical, shifting around the building in some other fashion. Mm -hmm. So... Okay, so it's really that little section of the parking lot off to the side that seems to be causing concerns. Are there ways, um, we talked before about buffers there, what that looks like. 
um, are there ways we can best minimize what you know what, what I think the concerns that we're hearing are about the lights, the sound, um, the elevation above. Is there a section I thought that had an elevation that was higher than the berm that's there? Was that what we discussed last time? Yes. Um, well, I don't know if I can speak. Sure, go ahead. But last time I um, had mentioned the closest section of parking to the building, there's like 110 feet. There's no screening there because where it goes down into the basin, it's lower. And then the next 70 feet, there's about a seven foot berm. And then the next 130 feet, it looks like there's about six to seven feet. And um, I would, I was thinking of a condition where there could be like a sound wall and um, that would be on top of the berm. It can either follow the berm. And so it's maybe, I, I guess it would be up to the board how tall it was, but a sound wall that would also be a light barrier from the cars that are coming in. It can either go along the parking lot and then be whatever the board decides, you know, 12 to 20 feet high, or it can follow this berm where in some sections it might have to be, you know, 12 to however feet high, but where there's seven foot berm, then it doesn't have to be as high. You know, you just, if it's 14 feet high, you just have to go up seven feet. And I guess that would be up to the applicant on how they wanted to design it. But I really think there should be some sort of barrier wall berm between the parking lot and the residence. There's only okay. a hundred feet to the residence from any, the parking lot. Any thoughts on that from the applicant? Well, you know, it, there's more than a hundred feet. Let's to start with. It's a it's a, an established vegetated area that's not being disturbed. Um, you know the the lighting level is appropriate. It's dark sky compliant, um, so it may be perceptible, but it's not going to be shining in anyone's windows. Um, you know we we won't engage in trying to engineer a plan uh, on Zoom in this fashion. Um, you know, uh, 20 foot sound wall strikes me as extreme overkill. Um, for, for what is only a passenger vehicle parking lot. The lights are 7.6 feet high, right? The parking lot lights. I don't remember the specific height. Yeah, well, that's what I David, see. David, do you know the heights? Um, they vary. Some are taller than others. Uh, let me look up the... Uh, we can continue while I look for this information. Oh, that's okay. Um, yeah, they're between 20 feet, 6 inches, and 27 feet, 6 inches. Uh, similar to what we did on the Hayes G project. I also saw that OSHA standards for like parking lot foot candles mentions three foot candles at max. 
And there are some foot candles near the light fixtures that are up to seven, eight or nine foot candles. Is there a reason for the difference in that or is there a different standard you're using for your calculations or? For me? No, just for the oh. applicant. Is, it there, is <laughs> there a reason behind that or? I mean, you know, the, the, the technical people can answer it better than I can. I, I, I think from my experience, the issue isn't what the lumen is at the light. The concern for abutters is what's the spill off of the site. And I think the photometric plan's pretty clear that there is no spill in that fashion. Um, so I'm not sure what, what the issue is since the light is not spilling over into any abutting properties. If I may quickly, I, I believe that the three foot candles is an average for the site. On our photometrics plan, we have an average, we have a maximum. The average is 0 0.91 for the site and the maximum is 6.7. That maximum sometimes occurs where two lights are kind of overlapping. So I think that's, it's very appropriate for the site. But it says 6.7, but I see some numbers there that are like eight point something and nine point something right underneath the lights. That, that may yeah. be right underneath the light. I'm not sure if we look at it immediately underneath the light. Right, so the maximum isn't. I, I think the point is, I, I think the point is, is that near the property lines, the uh, foot candles are zero. Okay, I'm gonna take another public comment. I see another handout um, just with the phone. The last three digits are 376. If you just would state your name and address. Oops, I'm just gonna. Um, do you have to, what do you have to hit on the phone to get yourself off mute there? Is there a star? Oh, Laurie, now you're on mute. <laughs> Sorry, star six uh, and star nine. I can't remember which is which, but just bear with oh, me. You're off mute. I, think you're network. I think they're, I think you're off mute. If you wanna just put your name and address. Yes, hi, my name is Manny Wolfs. I live at 96 Bartlett Street and uh, I wanted to, to rake my hand because I want to clarify uh, the email, Carrie, that you referenced uh, at the uh, beginning of this that uh, you got from me. And I also want to make a comment on uh, as a follow-up on the VLC. So I'm not sure I understand the resistance by the uh, applicant to do a test. Um, what are they afraid of? I mean, if they don't think there's an issue, as the board member says, do the test, put it behind you. And I guess the other question I have is, is that given the time this spill occurred and given the distance away, what is the what would be a, an estimated timeline for these VCOCs to actually show up from leaching that distance in the field? Are we really testing premature to that and that this problem is going to occur a year or two years or so from now? I don't know the answer to that, but it was something I'd like to know so that just because it doesn't show up today, the spill could show up in a year or two, and then we will be faced with uh, that contamination, the issue of it, but it'll be too late to impose anything as part of this uh, uh, plan approval. Uh, so that's one of the things I guess I think that 
does warrant additional follow-up. And I think that given whatever some professional analysis would indicate an expected timeline would be for leaching that distance to this site, uh, may even require inclusion of uh, a long-term periodic testing until we're 100% confident that there is no leaching that's occurred. Um, so anyways, I do think that that should be uh, followed up on. Uh, the other thing I want to clarify in my email, and uh, my comment was that the analysis that was provided by Guterres to the NWRA and that formed the basis of the 8M approval that was provided on 10 July, and the analysis was performed by the Guterres-funded engineering firm of Langdon. And basically, the data that was provided to the NWRC, claiming that there's no risk to the structural integrity of it, was based on very limited engineering analysis that was strictly based on static loading of a cement truck and static loading of a fire truck. And yet, interestingly, this warehouse is going to be, you know, having like 285 average adjusted daily transits across this uh, right away based on one of the ENRs that I saw. And I don't see 18-wheel tractor trucks, which by federal law can weigh as much as 80,000 pounds, which is even more than a cement truck or the fire truck. I don't see that in there. Also, a single vehicle, anyone who's been down Bartlett Street and see what happens at peak times at Amazon, they'll actually back up their trucks and block traffic on Bartlett Street as they're waiting to pile in to the facility there. So you're going to have two-way traffic, and at some point in time, the same condition could occur here, where you could have two 80,000-pound tractor trucks sitting still in traffic on top of the aqueduct. That was not even indicated as a test condition for analysis uh, by Guterres to the NWRA. So my position is that I believe the testing did not do it. Uh, I saw no evidence that it was analyzed. And so the data that the NWRA was given to make their determination of approval is, in my opinion, inadequate to reflect the actual operating conditions in the vehicles that would be traversing that um, driveway. Thank you, Manny, for clarifying that. I did not do your email justice, I suppose. Thank you. Yeah, and, and can I mention one other thing too on the NWRA, and maybe you can tell me if my, my addressing this to the NWRA is the wrong place, but there's about 15,000 square feet of snow storage that's being planned in the latest plan that was submitted on February 23rd that is running adjacent to or in extremely close proximity to the aqueduct. And as we all know, anyone who's walked down there, this land is at a higher elevation. So any snow that's stored in these snow storage areas, any snow melt would cause that uh, snow melt to go down into the basin where the aqueduct is located at. And snow melt from driveways and things like that will in include in wintertime things like uh, road salt, potentially any other contaminants from any kind of drips from oil or diesel or anything else that you typically see on pavement. Uh, and so that to me, I don't see anything even considered by the NWA on that. So I, I'm curious is who does look at that to make sure that there's no water? I mean, we get our drinking water from the, from the uh, NWRA, do we not? That's a good question. I, I believe so. Lori, do you, is that the case? We do. Yeah. I think it was when they shut the wells down. Yeah. Okay, thank, and thank so you. And so hence my real concern on, yeah, and just so you know, that's oh, another reason why my concern on the structural integrity of the 
aqueduct because if there's any damage to that structure and it is just nothing but bricks and so 80 you know bouncing trucks going across the pavement if it creates any leaks that contaminated water could get into our drinking water okay thank you um for bringing that forward so i don't i don't know what's i'm go sorry ahead. sorry Karen. No, no, go, go, go. the uh the enf form for the mwra I don't believe they put in a use at all. So I think it was just for either construction or for fire access. Is that on the application? The application to the MWRA? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was to cross the aqueduct. With construction vehicles or fire safety. Yeah. But not for the use. Is that not required? No, I mean, it's, it was for an industrial use. If I may, I'd like to just provide some clarification. Um, oh, sure. That'd be great. Or on this point, and I guess it's not common or typical for us to talk about our process with other unrelated um, permitting agencies, but I'm happy to share a little background here just to clarify and hopefully answer some of the questions and hopefully uh, put this issue to rest. Uh, we engaged with the MWRA with uh, representatives from the MWRA, including engineers from the MWRA who were uh, versed and in the area of the MWRA that provides these types of permits and goes through these types of exercises in other areas where there are crossings. We presented our plans to the engineer from the MWRA worked with them through the analysis. We didn't just simply hand them an analysis. The analysis that was provided was developed in coordination with the MWRA. And at the end of that process, they approved, uh, reviewed and approved the analysis and the report uh, that we provided to them, which we've already shared with the board. So um, I'm not so just to suggest that or imply that this was not a thorough analysis that the MWRA accepted and didn't know what was going on and what the use was going to be is just simply not accurate. And so just to be very clear, that analysis was done in conjunction with members from the MWRA staff, including engineering staff, who reviewed the calculations, reviewed the methodology, and accepted what uh, the report that we provided uh, and provided the permit ultimately. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, I have a couple more hands up. Um, Jean Cahill, I'm going to bring you in to talk. Just your name and address, please. Hi, Jean Cahill, Wentayer Street. Um, so I just wanted to uh, draw to the attention um, of, of everyone here uh, the degree to which the CBOC issue, the, the chlorinated volatile organic issue is um, potentially affecting this property. And if you look to um, the levels in 1996, as well as measured in 2018, so persistent conditions over time, we are seeing, um, we are seeing the accumulation of VOCs under 40 Hayes Memorial, which is the building immediately up gradient adjacent to the Eastern side of Zero Bartlett that are at 15,800 microgram TCE per cubic meter under the building. And this exceeds the Massachusetts threshold for 
what we would consider a safe condition by 100 fold. So we have a magnitude problem here. It's not just that there might be CVOCs and that they're going into the wetlands and that's a good thing. Those wetlands are protected and we should be recognizing that as an environmental condition and taking responsibility for it. And we should also be very concerned about the buildings that are going to be potentially in line with this contaminant plume that has persisted over a 20 year period. So to Mr. Lopez, uh, I'm sorry, um, to uh, Manny's uh, question before as to what's happening over time. We don't know because we're not analyzing for it. And I think it's incredibly arrogant to say, we are just not gonna test for it and expect that to fly because that's not in the public interest. That's not in the public health's interest. And I will gladly supply you with all of the details that I wrote to the board to um, underscore to what degree the scale and the magnitude of this contamination issue. We really need to look at this and not just say, we don't have to do it, we're not gonna do it. Um, Jean, it, thank you for submitting this letter. It was, uh, I know it must have taken you a long time. So I just wanted to acknowledge um, that it was really informative. And I, I think I personally read through it and I'm sure other board members did as well. So I, I appreciate you sending this in. Um, you had also included some information from uh, LSP Mike Doshino, who also lives in Northborough. Um, I just wanted to let you know that we did reach out about the Northborough Historic District Commission, that area that he had questioned. Um, we reached out to Norm Corbin. And, and, and if the applicant doesn't have that, we can certainly forward that. But there was no um, historic archeological site. Was that correct, Laurie? There was no archeological site? That's correct. No, no identified sites on this property. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to address that. I know you took the time to get that information as well. Thanks so much. Um, Rachel Armstrong. Hi, Rachel, just your name and address. Uh, Rachel Armstrong, 10 Hemlock Drive. Um, I don't mean to beat a dead horse on this and I'm not as uh, well-versed as Jean Cahill or, and I'm not certainly not an environmental engineer, but I guess my concern is we're trying to figure out the liability of these CVOCs. So if Gutierrez is refusing to test prior to construction and these they become an issue, does Gutierrez accept then the liability for a spill that wasn't their fault? It would seem like now's the time to make the responsible parties come up and clean up you know, whatever contamination they have to, if Gutierrez is refusing to test the soil, then do they become liable for any future issues because now's the time to test for it. Thanks for your comment, Rachel. So my understanding is the responsible party is um, the property on which the spill occurred. Um, if that, Attorney Dineski, a question for you. If, if it is not delineated at that property and it is in fact on this property and there's some sort of issue with the building or the, the people in the building, there's some sort of I don't know, issue to the drinking water or anything like that, um, is that the original property owner still the only liable one with the information that we have or, or what, what anything we need to consider? 
I'm not even sure that's something you can answer. It's okay if not. Madam Chair, the owner of a property from which there is a release or a spill or whatever the word we might use is, would have liability under Massachusetts law, Chapter 21E, and there may be liability under other Massachusetts and or federal laws. There can also be liability for a party that acts to exacerbate a situation or takes action that's inconsistent with the regulatory scheme. But for an example, as between an owner of a property that receives a spill and the owner of a property from which there is a spill, the owner of the property from which there is a spill would have the liability both under the regulatory scheme and conceivably liability to the owner of the other property. That would be a private civil matter. But the threshold here is that you are responsible for your property. And if you do something or a release comes from your property, the law places liability on you as the owner. Okay. So if someone, something happened to someone on this property and the planning board knew that there was a possibility of a problem, the town would never be liable? Or I mean, anyone could sue anyone, right? With respect to a claim against a town as to a permitting matter, there are specific exclusions in the Massachusetts Tort Claims Act that I will speak in generalities because I have to, but as a general rule, an issuance of a permit or an approval is not a basis for a liability claim to be made against a public body. Again, as you said, a, someone can bring a claim, but the law states certain thresholds and includes certain exemptions for liability uh, of a public entity in Massachusetts. And it's the case that the Tort Claims Act was enacted to be itself an exception to what is still, in some instances, the rule of law that has existed for many centuries, which is so-called sovereign immunity that the government cannot be liable for various acts. So the short answer would be there is an exemption for permitting activity uh, in the case where someone is asserting that a public body should or should not have done something in connection with that permit. I just have one more question real quick. Um, so if I understand it, so what you're saying is, is that the originator of the spill is the responsible party. There's already been determined that there is leaching to a property adjacent um, could there be potentially the, the requirement from, say, MassDEP or somebody to require them to then test other adjacent properties? The uh, one site, I believe, that's still active that Mr. Bartlett identified in his report could conceivably have additional requirements imposed uh, through the DEP. I couldn't specify in particular what those might be, only to say that while a site is still under DEP review, there are options for both testing and remedial action in order to achieve a property clearance. 
Does that answer your question, Bill? Um, I don't know. <laughs> and I, I guess what my question is, is, you know, do we get, you know, the, the big question here is nobody wants to test the soil, right? Nobody wants to know. Um, do we force the people who made the spill? No. Right, how, how far their spill has actually gone. Uh, a property that it's still that is still under DEP review would be conceivably still subject to either testing or exploration or monitoring or remedial action. But those kinds of concerns can be addressed separately through that regulatory proceeding as against or with respect to the owner of the property in question and the DEP and any other regulatory authority that might be involved. Uh, typically, it would be state authorities. I think from what I read in Jean's, and I could be wrong, she said that the DEP has told the owner of the property that they have to do a phase two, but they're ignoring the request. And I know that has nothing to do with this one, but I do get concerned because even um, Mark Bartlett said it's possible that they could migrate towards the Eastern wetland area. However, he thinks that the groundwater would be a buffer. And, and to me, that doesn't, I don't know, doesn't sit well that our protection is that we're gonna just pollute the groundwater that has all the animals and the vernal pool in it too, on top of everything else. And who knows, I don't know, but I do think, I think we should forward it to the DPW. They check the wells to check the wells in the area for this TCE. I don't know if there are any private wells in the area, but they should probably check too. Okay, other comments? I think we have um, Jean Cahill. I'm going to bring you back in. Hi, Jean. Hi. Yeah, uh, Jean Cahill went there straight. Just wanted to say that um, that RTN, uh, that is the release tracking number for the property immediately upgradient, does seem to be stalled. Um, that They have submitted delays for their subsequent phase two comprehensive site assessments for several years in a row. They are trying to get property access to adjacent properties that like Zero Bartlett does not want them to come on and test. Um, so that's hanging up the process, but it does, it is material to this particular site, Zero Bartlett, that we don't have that plume delineated. It's not getting delineated by the responsible party, but what is the responsibility of the owner of Zero Bartlett for ensuring that what they're planning to do with their own property is not going to cause um, their own liability for putting in harm's way a, a building and receptors. And we are also ignoring the ecological receptors, the MCP. Our, our cleanup program says gives equal weight to human health and ecological health. And we are not, as, as the conservation restriction owner of that rare, habitat, we are not taking that into account. And we keep just saying it's going to the wetlands, so it's not a problem for, for human health. Well, we have to protect ecological health as well, and public welfare and public safety. Those are equal considerations for what constitutes no significant risk. So my concern is by not testing, the zero Bartlett 
property owner is actually liable for the things they're not doing. And they're building and they're investing a lot of money in the way of harm. And it's not in their interest and it's not in the public interest. And the DEP is not going to save the situation, nor is the responsible party. It's really the responsible owner who should be doing their due diligence and making sure that CBOCs are not migrating into their, into their investment. And that's really the way the laws are written is based on that, that self-interest that of course you would do that. You wouldn't just let a recognized environmental condition go. You would fully characterize it and protect yourself and protect what you plan to do with your property. Good point, thank you. Any other comments at this time? Okay. Um, and still, you, the applicant, you have no desire. Oh, Amy, you have a comment. Well, we got an email from Jack Wickstead that he's having trouble connecting. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not on email. Um, Lori, do you see that? I don't know if you want me to read it. Um, he's, uh, he's making his points via the email. Uh, yeah, it says dear planning board. It. Oh, yeah. You oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So it says, I presume that the Gutierrez company will use a similar lighting scheme that they have used on their other buildings. The lights on their properties are visible from nearly a mile away. To say that there will be zero light spill is simply inaccurate. There will be tremendous spillover. Period. The parking lot can be sited in many locations. This is a 60 acre site. Frankly, if they have to shrink the building to site the lot away from residential homes, that is what the bylaw requires. Criteria five calls for this. It is silly to say that this is the only location for the lot. Okay. And then I don't know if there are issues. It doesn't seem like Others are having an issue with Zoom. So hopefully it's just an isolated issue. I haven't seen anything else come through. Um, okay. Any other comments? Jean, I can't tell if your hand is still up or you have a new comment. I'm gonna, um, oops, I guess not. Okay, great. So that looks like that's that. Um, any? Oh, and what I was going to ask is the, I assume the applicant has continues to have no interest in testing at all. Not as part of this review. I mean, uh, it, Gutierrez uh, always has and always will act as a responsible property owner uh, and consider uh, its responsibilities, which it has as a property owner uh, under general laws, chapter 21E of the mass contingency plan. Um, they've retained Sandboard Head to review the site. You've seen that report. That report's been reviewed by your consultant. Neither one recommend further action. Uh, we'll continue to monitor the situation. Okay. All right. At this time, why don't we um, wrap up any sort of conditions so that we can get a complete list to the applicant for a response? Oh, Millie, you have something? I just have a quick question on... Um... If a property has a, a wreck and it is going to be sold or change hands, is that something that is required to be brought forth to the new property owner? 
I don't know, Attorney Dineski, do you know that answer? Is the question about disclosure of a condition on a property? Mm -hmm. Well, there are a couple of things. There, there could be in a purchase agreement as there often is with uh, large commercial or even residential property transactions, a requirement between the private buyer and seller with respect to determining the condition of the property, which would necessarily include either a seller's agreement to perform a test or a buyer's uh, right to perform a test to determine if the property is satisfactory from the buyer's perspective. There's also just the general uh, obligation of an owner to disclose something that it knows that's material to the property that's being purchased. But that's not so something that we would- In, in essence, it, it's, it's generally treated as the civil arrangement, the private arrangement between the buyer and the seller. Okay, all right. Um, and are you by any chance familiar with, with something called a downgradient property status? Is that something that a resident could put on this property if they find their wells to be or their their um, property to have contamination on it and they think it might be from an upgradient source if this were upgradient? I will not profess to be an expert under the mass contingency plan, but it is a classification that someone could seek designation under with respect to uh, a DEP oversight so that it would be entitled either to notice and or to participate to some degree in a regulatory uh, slash cleanup proceeding. Okay. Were you thinking something there, Millie, or just clarification? Um, just if any of the residents did find something in their their property, then they might be able to say, we're not going to allow any more building on this property or any more development if they feel or find that it's from a site that is upgrading and had maybe contributed to the contamination or didn't didn't um, mitigate anything. Okay. All right, any other questions or comments before we look at where we stand for conditions? Okay, so the last we looked at, I'm gonna, let's see. We have a working document that is from uh, the last time we met. And then we also had some additional conditions. Of that working document, there was one that we needed to um, look at a little more closely. That was um, the, I think the traffic monitoring one, hold on here. Okay, if I'm looking at, no, that's not the right one, hold on, here we go. Okay, so from 3.1, Lori, that's the, that would be the working version to review? Correct. Okay, great. So I'm gonna pull that up um, and just, and I understand um, the applicant, you don't wanna necessarily revise these now, but I just wanna make sure we're all on the same page for where we stand just to level set on where we are um, to date. Whoops, hold on here. I'm gonna share my screen. Okay, I think this is the right one. 
Does everyone see um, March 1st working document as the title of this? Yes. Okay, great. So um, Lori pulled together, um, we had gone through all of the conditions to date, and this reflects all the conditions that were discussed at our um, February 21st um, planning board meeting. So this has not been reviewed by the applicant necessarily or for discussion here. But just to refresh everybody's memory of um, where we stand, there was one, um, I think highlighted in red here that the board talked about. So we had um, the Stantec and any conditions. Were there actually any conditions remaining after the last time we looked at the Stantec letter? Uh, the Stantec, uh, they did not recommend any conditions. Okay, so that may be uh, non-applicable. And the last item, I think, the the area where we needed to revisit was just thinking about um, if we wanted to put in a condition of the post-occupancy transportation monitoring program. So this is where we left off talking last time, and I think the board had a couple different versions of this. Um, so we should probably nail down what this looks like. And then if there are any other um, conditions up for consideration that we could include and give. So by the time we leave here, the applicant will have a complete list of what we anticipate for any sort of conditions of approval. Millie, you have something there? Just on the uh, traffic monitoring, I assume that only covers the original uh, area of the original traffic report. Have we? Re I don't think we've received. Have we received any other? Did it specify the date from December fifth, twenty nineteen? Okay. Yes. Yes. So uh, this proposal would only look at the site driveway, so it wouldn't look at the other intersections within the vicinity, uh, because the the idea is to track the traffic that's associated with this project versus all of the cumulative impact of the traffic from all of the other uses in the vicinity. Mm -hmm. And a, just a correction, I see the next line that says this was updated August 17, 2020. So we would actually yeah. use August 17, 2020 as our baseline. Okay, so it basically would cover the exact same um, intersections or, or okay it would only be the site driveway yeah okay that's that not really impact but okay well i think the idea would be wait the traffic study the traffic volumes was um informing the board on the volume of traffic from the site only the additional traffic from this generated from the site is that correct i just need to refresh my memory Correct. So, so they made some assumptions about how much traffic would be generated by the facility. So the aim here is to verify that uh, the traffic is consistent with what they said it was going to be. Um, and if it's not consistent, so if it exceeds the estimated counts by 25% as represented in the traffic study, then they would have to propose mitigation measures valued about to $20,000. But mitigation of what? The end of their driveway or? No. So 
that would be determined as most appropriate. So I, I would imagine that it would be somewhere along Bartlett Street. It might be an engineering study, um, you know, maybe the intersection, the major intersection of, uh, I think it's Lyman, would um, now have the merits for a traffic signal. So this $20,000 could go towards the engineering for the traffic signal, which would most likely, well, hopefully be paid for um, through the TIP program. Yeah, just and not on this particular one, but it's just the area of impact is obviously much bigger than the end of the driveway, but that's that's another discussion. Okay. Um, and just to let you guys know, I can't see everybody at the same time when I share my screen. So if you do have something and I don't acknowledge it, just feel free to um, just let me know. Okay, so that looked like the only thing. Otherwise, I think Lori captured... If you go up a little, I had one change after oh, the traffic study. Yeah. Um, where it says commercial truck traffic shall be prohibited from turning right. Um, I wanted to say commercial vehicles. So not just trucks, like say it's vans. So V underneath the red, the next. Um, Got it. Um, so before I start making edits, I just want to clarify oh. with the applicant. Um, do you prefer to... Um, you're more than welcome to weigh in however you like, but do you want me to stop each time and get your opinion, no, no. or do you want to just do it in full, in mass, when we're all done and go back and look at things? It's up to you. Last time we just kind of went through and you were silent for a lot of it. Sure. I, I, I you know, I, I think I we share your goal to make sure that we, you know, have enough time to get through the entirety of all the conditions. So um, we don't want to belabor one or and not be able to achieve that. If there's something we can weigh in, we'll just We'll chime in and you can tell us we're out of line or something so okay all right that sounds good so otherwise to feel free to shout out if you want to interject but i'm going to make these edits and then um we won't assume that silence is acceptance we'll just this is just for efficiency purposes i might not actually agree on that one myself i think commercial truck traffic is one thing commercial vans are another okay hold on a second i just have to save this again to um, actually make edits and it is the seventh. We have that. I was only bringing that up because some of the complaints we've heard from places like in Milford, if it is like an Amazon with all the delivery vans, they all line up and leave all at once. And then they would be, you know, interacting with the schools and the high school. And it, it would just be a lot of traffic heading out at the same time. Whereas they all go left and then they disperse then they're not interacting with the school. Okay, so it would be the, the thought is commercial vehicles. Was that what it, you suggested? Yeah, as long as it's including trucks. Like I looked up the definition of commercial vehicles and included trucks, fans, but we might wanna call out trucks to make it specific, like commercial vehicles, including trucks or just commercial vehicles. But it's up to everybody else too. These are just ideas I thought of. Okay, I think that's a good change. Anyone opposed to that change on the board, that is? Okay. Um, were there any other suggested edits to, um, or amendments to what we have here? 
there was one more that had commercial trucks that I want to change vehicles, but I don't know which one it was off the top of my head. Okay. But I'll see it when we go down. I, I believe it's uh, S, the third bullet down. Oh, okay. So it'd be okay. Okay. Um, do we want to address? Why don't we? While we're here, why don't or. Let's address what we have for any other conditions or any other edits coming back to the transportation monitoring. Um, any other amendments based on what we have here? I just have additional conditions, but I think we're going to go through it. Okay. A DD up there. You just went by it. Where, where it says the 24 foot wide gravel maintenance path around the back of the building shall be kept clear of snow. I was thinking in storage too, because if it's emergency exit, I just didn't want people to start piling up pallets. So if there's an emergency that they can't get out the doors and the police or fire can't get in the doors, but maybe that's a regulation already. It is. <laughs> <laughs> that they can't block the doors? Yep. <laughs> okay. So there's no change there? Yeah, I guess so. I was thinking clear of snow and outside storage, but if there's already a safety rule that you can't do that, then. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Millie, this is, you attest to that. Laurie, do you, do you, is that in our building code or this is where we can use Bob? I, I defer to Millie on that one. All right, Millie, you're. I, I can t tell you that it's been brought to my attention. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll just put a note. Um, okay. That's both inside and outside. Well, I don't think we can do anything with inside. <laughs> no, they do. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anything else here? Okay, so we, why don't we move on to um, any proposed additions? Amy, you mentioned that you had some additions. Well, I wanted um, the sound and um, visual barrier wall. Do you have anything written that you want to share? Because now I could, so rather than me try to type, is there anything you have in writing that could be helpful to look at or? Um, I wrote, and this is just not official. I just wrote on my notes, the applicant shall provide a sound in visual barrier wall between the parking lot and the abutting residential neighbors, neighborhood. So I had a condition X uh, where the planning director determines that existing vegetation is inadequate to screen the development from abutting residentially occupied properties. 
a six foot stockade fence and or coniferous trees shall be installed. The planning director shall approve the type of screening in advance of installation, including the location and species number and size of plantings, if plantings. That's what it currently says. I think we can talk about it as a board, but I think we need, I'm not saying that that isn't good, but I'm, I think we need higher, and I also think it needs to be a sound wall. I was looking them up online and there are sound walls that go between residential neighborhoods and industrial sites. Amy, can I ask why a sound wall if it's parking for cars? Well, it would stop all the sounds of the um, the warehouse and the trucks going up and down. It's 100 feet from the residential district. So it's the closest warehouse. And there are a lot of sounds from the trucks that are going in and out of the site. I mean, when we were at the site walk that day, we could hear people over at Hayes G. We could hear the trucks backing up and making sounds. And truthfully, when they talk about reducing, you know, the sounds and the scale, if this building isn't going to be brought into scale with the neighborhood, then we need to do things that are going to protect the residents from the industrial use that's right next door. Yeah, I guess, are you saying sound wall along the property? No, at the I was saying or along the parking lot. I could even pull up a picture at one point. I did. I mean, I I, yeah, I think I know where you're talking about. I just, I'm not, I guess I feel most of the sound and noise is going to be coming from the trucking area, the loading bays and that side. So I'm not sure a sound wall there will help much with that. Well, I do think depending on the height, it could help with light mitigation as well. And you got to remember, you're going to have truck traffic coming in and out, um, which will create its own noise. Hmm. Amy, is there a picture you want to share to give a visual hmm. of what you're? How, yeah, and it's it's just the site plan. It's not a picture of a sound wall, but I can point out the area I'm talking about. Sure. But the area you're talking about, I think, is up high. Is that not correct? Up higher, and then it nope. has a berm. No, nope, I'll show you. Okay, I'll stop sharing for a second. Can you see that? Sort of. I the site plan? Yeah. So this is the parking lot. Mm -hmm. And Whoops. I should make this picture smaller. So this is the parking lot and this is the warehouse. Yeah. This whole section is 110 feet. Mm -hmm. This, there's no protection there. It's zero, the berm, it goes downhill. This section right here, the berm, it goes from 276 to 283. So it's about seven feet high, the berm there. And then this is around 130 feet. And right here, it's 280 feet. And this is a high of like, I think it was 286. So it was six feet high. So what I was 
trying to say is that they could put a sound wall berm starting on the other side. I don't, I don't know why I didn't have the whole picture. On the other side of the basin and follow the berm. So where it's seven feet high here, if you called for a 15 foot wall, then you'd only have to do eight feet. And if it's six feet here, then you do, you know, and then it, where there's nothing, then you'd have to go up the 15 feet. And the sound wall stops all of the sound and the lights from the trucks exiting, exiting and entering the site. Right here, it's not on this drawing, is within the 100 foot buffer. So the residential property next door, mm -hmm. their property line is less than 100 feet from this parking lot. And I know from complaints we've gotten in the past from neighbors who abut industrial and commercial uses, they hear the people arriving and shutting their doors and talking in the parking lot, say at like five in the morning, or if this facility ran 24 hours and you'd have employees coming in at three in the morning and we're trying to make it work with the neighborhood, mm -hmm. which is what I think the conditions are for on the site plan. So to me, a sound wall barrier, and if they didn't want to follow the berm, you could follow the edge of the parking lot, but then the sound wall is higher because you're not on top of the berm that's already there. So are you creating something that, it, you know, the natural habitat wouldn't be able to go back and forth across? Is that? I don't know if they would be. You've got a, a warehouse parking lot now in a steep embankment. I don't, they're putting the warehouse on top of the habitat. I don't think they're going to be going back and forth here. Just trying to figure out what they can or cannot do in that area. So, yeah. All right. I mean, so that was just an idea to throw out there since we're throwing out conditions now. Yep. I'd also like to see the lights in the parking lot to be shielded. There's something, I have a whole list of conditions, but it's called a full cutoff light. So it shields all the way down. If you don't have a full cutoff light, it releases some of the light out horizontally. So that's where you would get the light shining on the houses and a full cutoff light in the parking lot should help shield the lights from the neighborhoods. I'll stop sharing this now. Thank you. Yeah, let me see if I had another one. Oh, here's another picture that shows the building. So the, the fence or the wall could follow either the berm or if it's easier for them, they could design one that goes straight. I mean, I don't know anything about the construction of those, so I wouldn't. I looked one up online and some of them actually aren't too much different than a fence. They just have some sort of acoustical material that stops the sound from penetrating over into the neighborhood but I'm not an expert on them either. Um, so Lori, when you were talking about a stockade fence, were you envisioning that would run the whole line? That would have nothing to do with the berm. That would run the whole line of the lot? 
So what I envisioned is that, you know, when they do their plantings as uh, proposed with the landscape plan and they construct the parking lot, then we'll assess at that time to see if there's an adequate buffer. And if there isn't an adequate buffer, then they can do one or the other. So they could either install like arborvitae, the benefit of doing the arborvitae is depending upon the species, they could grow to be 40 feet tall. And, um, you know, if they're, if they're planted close together, then that would be a real effective screen for lighting purposes as well as sound. Mm -hmm. um, but then in other locations, depending upon the topography, it might make more sense to do a fence. So it all depends on what type of room you have and what the topography is, which one would be more appropriate. This shows three trees right here, but yet this whole area here is level. So those three trees aren't gonna stop the lights and sounds going over to the neighborhood. And actually, if they followed the berm with their sound wall, then there is an area here that the animals can get through because this is the walkway on the back of the building. I don't think you would have to bring the fence all the way here because you'd want the walkway accessible around mm -hmm. the berm and behind the building. So right here, there are three trees. There's a maple tree here, maple tree there. So there's one, two, three, four, five trees right now. You're, you're looking at the older landscape plan. If you look mm -hmm. at the uh, most recent one that was updated, uh, on uh, February 16th, um, there's more trees, well, one more tree in that area uh, that where the parking lot indents. So you get the three trees and then there's another one in that each corner. Um, so they could put the, uh, they could put the plantings on top of the berm if necessary. One thing that I, I never like to see is I never like to see cutting down existing vegetation so that you can put in new vegetation, which is much shorter. Um, but they're doing grading in all that area anyway. So the vegetation's coming out. Mm. And if they put the 10 foot landscape barrier around the parking lot, there'd be 10 feet right here where they could put the sun wall in the trees. Well, they definitely already have. I mean, they have significantly more than 10 feet on that area because it's it's all the way, you know, technically landscaping all the way to the property line. So they wouldn't have to create another buffer there. It's all gonna be graded. So it's all, like you said, all the landscaping still, is coming down. But that's still considered open space. Right, but if I read um, on page 798, it says parking facilities with more than five parking spaces shall be bordered on all sides with a buffer, buffer strip of at least 10 feet in width containing landscaping of sufficient density and height to provide effective screening for parked vehicles. So even though there's open space, there's not sufficient density and height to provide effective screening. But truthfully, since this is less than 100 feet from a residential district, 
you need a, a fence, a wall in the trees. Well, I mean a wall, not a wall and a fence. I would just say for the trees to get the height you need, I, I, I feel like that's the most expensive way to go. If anybody's ever priced out Aborites, they're not, they're not cheap. I feel like a wall is less expensive and more efficient or a sound barrier of sorts. I just don't think those trees are gonna even have the height to make a difference. The building is, well, I guess that's with the elevation. It's, what is it, 26 feet over the tree line? It's how many feet over the tree line do we say this was? If it were the full 40 feet? Uh, so the, uh, so from the parking lot to the top of Berm is between six and seven feet. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking that it's only around the parking lot anyway, so never mind. Yeah, so it's six or seven feet, and the arborvitaes aren't going to stop the sun. Mm -hmm. Um. So what will that look? I design wise, I have no idea what a what a sound wall looks like. What does that look like from that walking path? There can be all different ones. I went out and I looked at some. Like, I mean, you can pick some that are like a beige color. There's all different materials. Okay. So it'd be up to probably the applicant to come back with their ideas of how they would design it. Sure. I wouldn't want to design it for them. <laughs> but I would I would like to put that a condition in that the warehouse be a beige or a gray color so it blends in with the environment too, if we're talking conditions. Should I stop my share? Sure. Design review. Okay. Other um, conditions, Amy, that you wanted to bring forward? Um, well, I have a lot. I just have to read through them. Not a ton, actually. Um, one of the conditions would even be as far as the seeding and fertilizing, we talked about sodium, but what about, I would ask for a condition of no fertilizers on site because it's such a sensitive area for the habitat. You wouldn't wanna fertilize any lawns and the lawns or whatever seeding they're used could possibly be a wildlife seeding to get it back to the most environmentally sensitive, close to what it originally is. It's like a wetland area. So it's surrounded by wetlands. If there's any green space around the outside edge, you wouldn't want it to be like green and fertilized lawns that nobody's even gonna see anyways. You'd want it to be like back to the original wetlands as possible by using a wildlife mix and no fertilizers, at least in my opinion. Well, you, uh just, just to kind of focus that wherever the board's going next, I, I think you can, should demarcate that areas that are within the jurisdiction of the Conservation Commission are governed by the order of conditions. Right. So if, if what you're now talking about is other parts, um, you know, it, it, at some point, these conditions can't be concepts for us to comment on. We, you know, I, 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 don't know, I, I have no idea what you're saying right now, frankly, uh, about <laughs> so. They're, well, they're nice just, words, but I don't hear anything. So I was just asking for, I don't know what Gutierrez does for fertilizers on their properties. I was just asking that the lawns aren't like perfectly green lawn man, man, 
manicured lawns with fertilizers that more of a natural mix. Oh, Laura, you have something there? Yeah. Okay. Well, one of the concerns that I have is um, when they're establishing the, the, uh, the growth on the slopes, usually they hydroseed, and I'm pretty sure when they hydroseed, there's fertilizers that's uh, part of that mix. And that's so that you can get the growth established quickly and you can stabilize the site. So I, I wouldn't recommend a condition like that because it can be often very difficult to uh, establish vegetation on a slope. And so, you know, if, if you're gonna eliminate the fertilizers, then it's just gonna be even more difficult to establish that growth. So then there's a higher risk of um, sedimentation and erosion. So- okay. I was just trying to protect the wildlife in the ecosystems. If I could quickly, we went over this with the Conservation Commission already. We've been approved. We have an issued order of conditions. We've gone over the fertilizer. It's not a site plan review issue. And it's you know detailed in our O&M plan, which is approved by the CONCOM. Okay, well, we're the site plan and we talk about the landscaping and the trees. So I just, I didn't know that the CONCOM had approved your fertilizers, but that's good to know. Yep, it's in the O&M plan. It has been since 2019. Basically, it says use as little as possible, be very conservative, et cetera. Okay, well, that's good to know. Yep. And, and uh, Lori's very correct. Establishing that vegetation on slopes quickly is very important to avoid um, you know, any issues with the slope. Okay, so there is going to be a lot That's of a positive for the site. You want to get those sites vegetate, those slopes vegetated and stabilized immediately. Okay, so that just points out that there are a lot of site slopes. <laughs> And there'll be a lot of vegetation removed. Okay. If anybody else has one while I read down mine, you guys can jump in. I guess hours of operation I'd want to add as a condition. I don't know if anybody else has any ideas. Um, so for me, I'm more concerned with um, deliveries, uh, like truck deliveries at all hours. So if I would be okay with internal operations, if it's a warehouse that operates on the inside 24 seven, um, I'd be more concerned about deliveries in the middle of the night, especially with proximity to the neighborhood. So in my um, condition that I put, um, suggest the condition, it was more about hours of delivery. So I think, hold on, I'm scanning through documents. Um, so I had it as, I just put times out. I think we've used in past um, conditions for other applications. And I'm sorry, now I can't find it, even though I had it. FF. I'm sorry? It's FF. FF. <laughs> I know, I should find an easy way to do this. Um, so, we had put in a previously in one of the other uh, more recent approvals, we just put deliveries would be limited um, to certain hours, whatever those hours we could agree upon. I just threw out there eight to six. Um, I think that could be up for negotiation, but that was my placeholder for something like that. What, what did yours look like, Amy? 
Um, I was just throwing out there as like a discussion amongst the board that there should be some sort of hours of operation to limit, you know, the noise. Thoughts from board members on that? So, and Carrie, you're thinking deliveries as opposed to loading and unloading or? Well, I guess I consider that all the same, like any sort of outdoor delivery operations, like making noise with the trucks, like unloading them or, you know, whatever would be associated with noises with delivery. Whereas I didn't, I wasn't as concerned with inside the warehouse because say it was just, I don't know, whatever you'd be doing, say sorting or storing or whatever, or whatever could be happening in the warehouse. Right. I don't picture that as being significantly loud, whereas deliveries would be disruptive. It, you know, I know, I think the Amazon runs 24 seven. So I wouldn't, I wanted to avoid a situation like that. Right. But if I don't I, know. When I see deliveries and when I think of deliveries, I think of something just coming to the building, not something going from the building. Oh, great point. So yeah, so anything associated with oh, inbound or outbound, I guess. Okay. I'd yeah. say there shall be no outside operations or outside activities, except for like snow plowing or emergency trucks between the hours of, you know, and what did you say, eight to six? I, I just threw out there as a placeholder. Yeah. My, my current FF says 10 to six in case that's old. Oh, we have that in there already? Yeah. Oh, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. was the disconnects and idling. Okay. It could be. I think that was a condition in there. But this is more than just trailer disconnects and idling, I think. I don't know. Well, but also keep in mind that once the trailer is backed up there, there's no noise outside, right? So it's just the connects, disconnects, maybe the tractor backing up. Um, but, you know, my other concern is I don't want to limit too much, um, you know, their ability to be able to get a tenant. Mm. You know, we don't want an empty building sitting in the industrial area of, you know, we already have that over here at Whitney Street. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I agree with the, the connects, disconnects, the backing up of, of tractors, you know, the, the moving of, of trailers. Uh, between 10 and 6, I think that's great. But, you know, I don't know if you want to go as far as loading and unloading because that's basically done indoors anyways. Mm -hmm. Well, the way it's worded now is trailer connects and disconnects. So I think that makes sense. Okay. So that's not limiting the ins inside activity at all. Yeah, really, really just the heart of mine is keeping it the noise down, not having those 3 a.m. disruptions. So does the board feel like that satisfies that? The, the connects and disconnects? Would there be so. any other outdoor operations other than disconnects? I, I can't, I don't, well, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't see any area where they could like store tractors or trailers or anything like that there. So, you know, they're just going to have somebody coming in, dropping off a trailer and then leaving. If we limit just the connects and disconnects. I think that's fine. Uh, well, along those lines, I had had another condition um, that just truck stored on site should be a part of the normal operation of the business, not for just long term storage of trucks. I don't know, um, 
That was so I div I divided my conditions by the criteria. So just trying to consider like how do we have greater consist. So this was really related to criteria six. So ways we could achieve greater consistency and compatibility with the surrounding area as to building design or scale or site design. So you know thinking about without knowing who the tenant is, I want to avoid situations where this turns into some sort of like truck depot or I don't I don't it's tough to foresee what this could be. So I'm just trying to protect the area to the best of our ability. So things like, I'll just run through a couple that I had here. It's all under criteria number six. Um, so I had the, Amy, you mentioned this before. So the facade of the building should be designed with colors, materials, and the complement and blend with the natural surroundings. So not going for that white with the blue stripe was really um, stark in that setting. I wanted to avoid that. Just making sure the equipment um, minimize any excessive vibration, noise, or fumes that would be damaging to abutting persons or property. So if they were all of a sudden, I think the Amazon site did this, like adding generators or any outdoor chillers or large machinery or equip equipment, um, not already reflected in the site plan that would just require um, some sort of review, whether planning board or going to the planning director, I suppose. Um, and the other thing, oh, this is what we put in other conditions before about just making sure there's a baseline ambient sound level analysis at the property line. Um, and I'll share, so everybody could read this. Why don't I share my screen right now so you can see. Um, can you see it says um, no no earlier than substantial completion Bartlett conditions? Okay, so these are the this is what I just discussed. So under criteria six, ways that could help this plan better fit that criteria would be making sure there's some sort of consideration of noise, um, and that goes across that ambient sound level analysis. Just making sure equipment or there isn't some additional outdoor chillers added along the way or. If the tenant comes in and they need that, you know, how do we make sure that's not added? Um, the truck stored on the site and the building facade. So I think that was it for six. Any comments on those or questions or thoughts? I'd agree with those. Yeah. Um, and I think we already had something about, so then I looked at for criteria seven, just making sure we reduce glare from headlights. I think we actually had something about the parking lot lights in our current list, is that correct? Yes, I think we did. And then um, attorney Donahue came back and wanted us not to have shutoffs, but he wanted it to go to safety and security lighting. You have it as double A in the draft before you. Oh, okay, so it's already in there. Correct. Okay, great. So that solves that. Um, the delivery is already mentioned. Anything else here? I'm just going down if you're thinking about their criteria. Um, so we're gonna leave the shut off at two hours after close? Although we're not closing now, so. When do the lights go off in the parking lot? Um, so sorry, I'm just switching over to the other file of conditions.
Well, Amy, you had brought up the full cutoff lights to shield lights all the way down. So my intent is not to make it so they can't operate and be safe in the parking lot. It's just to make sure that the lights are actually shielded from the resident. So if there is that barrier, if there is that wall, um, does that actually satisfy that concern? Depends on how, how high the wall is. But I did find, um, I was looking up OSHA standards and they said all, and there was a condition on another warehouse that said all outdoor lighting shall not exceed three foot candles on any portion of the property, nor zero foot candles at the property boundary. All lights shall contain full cutoffs so that no light escapes horizontal to the lamp. I, I, I may be mistaken. I, I think actually your bylaw speaks in terms of uh, an angle of cutoff um, and it's not full cutoff. It's, it's a degree, so. All right, there are two, you can choose with dark skies compliant, whether you want the full cutoff or not. And sorry, I, sorry, Mr. If you really don't want spillover that you need to specify a condition that you want full cutoffs. Sorry, did you have something there? I missed your hand. Uh, yeah, I was concerned about um, the facade of the building condition. Um, and the reason why is because the design of the building has already gone through design review. So um, told I wonder if, if we could just modify that to say that it should be gray <laughs> instead of opening that door up all over again to go back to design review because they have already approved it. Yeah, that's fine. My point was just to make it compatible with the surrounding environment. So if that's gray or beige or whatever the case, that was just the heart of what I was saying. Does any board member have a comment on that? Nope. And also um, in the past, we've been told that we're the special permit granting authority or the site plan special um, approval authority. So um, design review gives advisory comments, but in the past we've been able to make changes. Like there was one building where they wanted gravels and we wanted mulch. So since we're the approving authority. Uh, well, the tough thing is that there are elevation drawings that are already in the package and when this uh, this project is approved, then the building inspector will be ensuring that the um, the building permit application building designs comply with what was in the uh, site plan review package. So when the condition is open ended like that, then who's the permitting authority? You know, you're, you're pretty much just tossing up the design back up into the air. And you're not saying our expectations are that you're going to build a building that complies with the uh, facade plans that are in the package. So that that's my concern. Mm -hmm. So if you don't like the white color with the blue stripe, then, you know, it, otherwise it's going to be identical except you want it to be beige or you want it to be gray or, or whatever. 
Um, but otherwise, it's going to be as shown on the facade drawings, unless you want them to totally redesign the building, which I don't think we want to go there at this point. I personally was just looking to have it blend with the environment. So if that satisfies that, I think that works. I'm not, I wasn't looking for a redesign. I don't mm -hmm. know, do board members feel differently? No. Okay. So how were you saying you, you just state that in the condition? I don't understand, I guess, how you were. Well, well I would just change my, I think you had suggested one before that was um, a little simpler that just said, um, building would be gray or beige or whatever that color is. Oh, okay. So you're just making the condition the building will be gray. Is that what Laurie was trying to say versus gray or beige? Oh, Laurie, is that what you're suggesting instead? I'm, I'm just asking for specific language so that there will be no question as to how to interpret the condition. So if you want it to be gray, I'm happy to put that in there. If you want it to be beige, I don't, I don't really care what color. I'm just oh, great. It's happy fine. to put it, write it in here. <laughs> okay. um, so right. just tell me what color you want it to be. I think gray would sound gray. gray. Yep. Gray. Okay. Um, for Improving pedestrian, so for criteria three, improving pedestrian, bicycle, or vehicular safety. Um, we already talked about the turning, the turn on Bartlett Street, so I think that's already reflected in what we have. Um, one thing I can't, it may actually be in there in some way, shape, or fashion, but um, just in the event the property operates a facility that's different from a traditional warehouse use then the owner would have to come back for just a reevaluation of project impacts. And this is because um, this traffic report that we received was really submitted for a warehouse. And the board talked about concerns with whether or not, what if it's really last mile distribution or a high cube facility or a parcel or a sortation warehouse. And then in that case, they all had higher trip generation potential. But we were told by the traffic um, consultant at the time that nope it's just the warehouse that, those are the numbers to use so my goal by this condition is just to make sure we protect ourselves if it's really not a warehouse in the end that the applicant would have to come back and just make sure the project impacts are um, are not greater than what was characterized in the application submittal so I put I put verbiage down for that, um, but that was the heart of it. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts or comments on that. No, I think that's good. Mm -hmm. We will have comments on that. Okay. Can you um, email that to me? Of course. Yep. Um, and then some of my other um, proposed conditions under this criteria was really about the traffic monitoring program, which we are aiming to come back to, and I imagine the applicant will have comments on anyway. So I don't know how specifically we wanna get. Um, I had looked at some different um, projected, um, whether or not it's 25% higher. I thought that was a little too high to, to give um, in terms of over what was originally estimated. Um, I thought it should be closer to no more than 10% of projected levels. 
I don't know how the board feels about the actual percentage, and I'm sure the applicant will have their own um, number as well. But any thoughts from the board? Like, do we think 25% over original projection is the right number? Is that too too much wiggle room? Do we want less I've than seen that? other boards bring it back at 10, 10%. Yeah. I saw the same thing. So that's why I thought we were ours was a little too high on that one. Um, other thoughts there? No, I'd agree with that. Um, I'm going to go to my easier ones. Let's see. I didn't have any comments for the criteria eight, the, the disruption of historic structures. I didn't have anything um, for reduced obstruction of scenic views. Um, I did have, I wanted to add a condition um, just to be sure that this application adheres to all requirements of our environmental performance standards, considering a lot of what we've talked about over the course of this application. Um, obviously, it's part of our bylaws anyway. I don't know if it's worth calling out, but um, any industrial use needs to comply to the environmental performance standards. And um, in some way, shape, or form, I just wanted to call that out. Um, I had some comments under the pedestrian, bike, and vehicle. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Yep. Go ahead. Yep. I wanted to incorporate Chief Fiber's <laughs> comments from his letter to 2123. Okay. He had talked about a sign for the crossing. He had talked about constructing a new path where... I, um, I do have some language that I put together. Oh, in sure. anticipation of this meeting it says oh, prior prior to construction activities the applicant shall modify the site plan to depict a five foot wide aqueduct bypass trail along the northern boundary line between assessors map 66 parcel 16 and the aqueduct assessors map 51 parcel 1 for planning director and town engineer review and approval the bypass trail shall enable users of the aqueduct trail to cross the access driveway at a gentler slope than currently depicted on the site plan. Sounds good. That's great. Was that the only one that wasn't covered in the other conditions we have? So the signage, no parking along the roadway or driveway, no idling. I think we had that. Mm -hmm. um, we had, I don't know about this one. Um, what does the board think? The last one is, should a future facility have scheduled deliveries and departures, a waiting lot or area for trucks slash commercial vehicles to wait in on site should be required as Bartlett, Bartlett Street is a no parking street. Be honest, I think their driveway is long enough that I don't foresee them having anything out on Bartlett Street. I mean, Amazon's a bit of a shorter drive. Yeah, they share that driveway with FedEx, so you know they're they're the ones that are usually parking on the street. Mm -hmm. But this is a pretty long driveway. I don't see them having to use Bartlett Street at all. Well, other than if we had a no parking along the driveway, it would just have to be like 
It's fine to wait on the drive. If you're in transit, it's fine to do that, but it's just not, you can't just park there. Yeah, I don't think it's wide enough to really allow, you know, parking on the side and then something going, trying to go by That's it. That's a good point. Right, so. That's a good point, Bill. Okay, Amy, did you have other stuff under there? So Lori, that sounded like good language. Does the board like that language to incorporate chief livers? Okay. And he also mentioned the signs crossing the aqueduct. Were they, I don't have it up, but were yeah. those the flashing signs or those are just regular like yield signs, watch out for trucks? Let me uh, find it. I know it's in there already. They're, they're not flashing signs. They're just the standard reflectorized signs that say pedestrian crossing. Uh, I had uh, under letter S bullet two, subject to the approval of the MWRA, the applicant shall install rectangular rapid flashing beacons at the aqueduct crosswalk to alert both pedestrians and drivers of potential conflicts. Okay. Amy, did you have other items under any that fits under any of the criteria? Um, let me look. Did we want, I think Lori might've had it in there, the install the EV charging stations. I know the applicant or Mr. Um, Donahue had mentioned just stalls, but I think we'd want the actual EV charging station as a condition. I thought that was... I'm pretty sure I put that in there. Let me see okay. if I can find. I thought I saw that. Okay. Uh, I think I pushed it back. Oh, here we are. T. Prior to issuance of an occupancy permit for the first tenant, the tenant shall install three electric charging stations where designated on the building permit plans. Okay. And earlier I talked about the 10 foot landscape buffer. I really would like to see it before approval. Like the promise of looking into it doesn't really add the landscape buffer. Which, are you, which one are you looking at? Um, well, it's a condition, it's um, page 798 of our bylaws that says that the parking lot needs to have a 10 foot wide landscape buffer. And I didn't see it shown on the the plans, which we talked about at the very beginning of the meeting. So oh, if you're, how yeah. about, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. Under letter D, it says prior to construction activity, the applicant shall, and they're already modifying the site plan to do other things. Um, so modify the site plan to depict the location and preservation of a line of mature pine trees along the boundary of land owned by the MWRA and the parcel identified as assessor's map 51 parcel three. So I could, uh, I could add that there. So they don't have to do it right now, but they'd have to do it before they put a shovel in the ground. What about the other sides of the parking lot? There's also the side that's along the driveway. I don't think there's a 10, ten foot landscape buffer there.
I guess if they're going to come back too with the wall design, you know, that could be all part of it. If we're going to, they're going to come back with more with replies to our comments and conditions. So I guess this would be a condition that I'd like to see when they come back at the next meeting. Um, so what is the actual condition though? Is it reflecting here already or am I adding it? I just want to make sure I have it on this list. Well, I just like to note it as a site plan change to show the 10 foot landscape buffer around the parking lot. For okay, so you would ask a question earlier about the parking lot. Is this the condition associated with that earlier line of questioning? Mm. Or is there yeah, something? It's not really a condition. I'm not sure if we're, I'm assuming since the applicant's going to come back and talk about our conditions, they could come back and um, show us where the landscape buffer is going to be around the parking lot. Like I wouldn't add it as a condition to the site plan because I would hope that they would update the site plan before we decide. Okay. Because we're not going to decide tonight because attorney Donahue wants to come back. Okay. With comments. We're not planning to change the plan. We're, we're going to work through a set of conditions that you can approve and will change the plan if required by the conditions pre-construction. My condition would probably be, if you're not going to show me what the trees are going to look like, it would be a condition like we did for one Lyman Street where there'll be a row of 20-foot trees between, you know, for the 10-foot landscape plan. Landscape buffer. It's getting so late. Like if the applicant doesn't want to say what they're going to do, then I guess my condition would be to ask for the max possible. Is that within the bylaw? Uh, no, it just says 10 foot landscape buffer of height and density. And when we did one Lyman that was near the residential, we put in a row of 20 foot high. Um, evergreens. So if if the applicant doesn't want to come back with what they want to do around their parking lot, we could put a row of 20 foot high evergreens. Okay, so this is pending. Um, I was just hoping the applicant could come back with what they're thinking of doing when they come back. Okay, so the there's a condition, I'm just gonna put a note to refer to the bylaw of height and density pending disclosure of how the applicant plans to meet the bylaw. Mm. Okay. Okay, and I'm hoping, you know, I'd like a condition of a sound wall. Okay, so I got that from before. Okay. Um, they also um, talk over and over again in the application about the 400 foot buffer of existing vegetation between the warehouse and the parking lot and the loading dock. They talk that there's a 400 foot buffer between the site and the road. Yet we know there's gonna be a subdivision where that all could be clear cut and that buffer will go away. So I'd either like to see a conservation restriction that they're actually gonna save the 400 feet vegetation buffer or add a row of vegetation buffer along the road or along the loading dock. Okay, board thoughts on that? Because we're being told there's a 400 foot buffer, but then 
as soon as this is approved, we're told that they're going to subdivide and then that buffer gets cut down. So how do we <laughs> install the buffer? There can either be like a buffer of trees along the road on the front property, or there could be a buffer of trees along a loading dock. Or there could be a conservation restriction that protects the buffer, the 400 foot buffer. The parcel on the left is groundwater one and it said it was unbuildable anyways in the um, subdivision plan. So maybe it would just have a conservation restriction on it that it's gonna continuously stay a buffer. That was just something I wanted to throw out there. Any preferences from the board on what? Well, I mean, if it, if it is unbuildable, and then a CR would probably make the most sense. I'm not sure what the applicant thinks. Uh, no. <laughs> I see Mr. Weiss is laughing. <laughs> I don't know if he has any input. But I don't know if we can condition a, a conservation restriction. Attorney Janeski, can we actually condition a restriction like that? Or if we're, if we're getting to the heart of the problem is just making sure that buffer doesn't go away. So do you have a recommendation on how to capture that within our rights to condition that? Madam Chair, I think the condition would need to be, if you will, a performance condition that provides for a physical set of circumstances. But in my view, as a site plan review process or in a site plan review process, you could not require a conservation restriction. Okay, so for a performance type condition, um, not to put you on the spot, but what could that sound like in this case? The representation is that there is a 400 foot buffer that would achieve, I'm just going to say X based on whatever the description is in the application. And the condition could require the maintenance of the buffer condition as has been presented, which is essentially that if an element of the property is going to do a certain thing or achieve a certain goal, the condition would be to maintain it so that it continues to do that. Okay. So Amy, does that capture what you were trying to do just to make sure that that doesn't go away in some sort of subsequent? Sure. Uh, I, I'm really not clear. <laughs> I need I need the words for the condition. Okay, that's okay. I did write them down, and um, Attorney Dineski, obviously, if you have, you'll see them too. So you could always comment as well to clarify if I. But basically, I have representation of 400 feet, uh, 400 foot buffer would achieve X. Um, that may, we'd maintain that buffer. Um, so. As presented, they would need to maintain that buffer as presented um, in their plan. So, something that out of fact that Attorney Jasky maybe can help us fine tune a little bit. But I'll send that to you, Laurie. I'll type it in. Okay, thank you. Okay, anything else, Amy? Um, I'm just looking. I don't know if you caught my one before about um, 
All lights should contain full cutoff so night, no light escapes horizontal to the lamp. Mm -hmm. So there isn't a horizontal spill off, spill over onto the neighbors. Mm -hmm. And what did we, did we decide something about the parking lot lights? About oh, the no. shutoff? Yes, we have that in there. I'm sharing, um, can you see my screen again? I have red lettering here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I know we had more conversation about this tonight. So I, I'm open to what this looks like. I'm just hoping that there's something we could put. So I have this under um, criteria two, just reducing the risk of groundwater contamination, et cetera. Um, I don't know exactly what this could look like. I, my hope is that there's something in here that whether it's just the owner, acknowledging the owner must comply with the MCP notification requests, um, or if there's the ability to get some sort of status report at some point. I, I'm not looking to um, make the applicant go through a cumbersome testing process. I just would like to have some sort of reflection that there is a problem that's been recognized in this area and acknowledge it in some way of what could be done or should be done at a minimum level. So I had put this language forward I know we had further discussion since I drafted it. So I don't know, board thoughts on this? Is there some sort of acknowledgement we we could or should put or, or thoughts on this piece of it? I know it's late and there are a lot of words right. in here that make it a little bit of a word salad. So if you want, I can share it with Lori and then it's something that the applicant could at least look at and we could further discuss at the next meeting. Right, I had written a condition too, but mine was very basic. I just said groundwater testing to make sure no threat of air or water pollution to the employees of the warehouse. <laughs> but yours is more technical, so. Maybe it is more simpler. I, so I'm open to that. I just wanted to include something. Any thoughts? Uh, right, it's hard, it's so late. I mean, I think it's something we all want, but I don't know if you can make it a condition, but. Yeah, so maybe, um, I'll send this language to Lori so that the applicant has it, and then we can talk about it further. I know, I know the applicant will obviously have feedback on this in general. So, and then maybe in the meantime, Attorney Janeski, you don't have to do that now, but if you also review this and, and let us know, is there anything that could satisfy wanting to acknowledge this in some way without making it something that's not within our jurisdiction? So. I think that was it from me. Just double checking. Okay, anything, Bill or Millie or Anthony, that you want to add? Nope. 
Okay. Amy, anything that you see that you want to add? No, I'm just going through one last time. I think going back to what we decided about op outside operations, we just said, what was the condition we decided? No the disconnect. And disconnect. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't think we settled on hours though. Huh? Yeah, I, I think we did. I think between 10 and 6. Right? I mean, so, yeah. six. so that would limit all shipping and receiving. So trucks aren't coming and going all night with disconnects and trailer connects and disconnects include all shipping and receiving. Yeah, because they wouldn't be able to move a trailer out of the out of the out of the spot if they can't connect to it. Okay, as long as it covers that. I mean, the only thing it would be like if this for some reason were to become some sort of last mile facility, those aren't trucks necessarily, those are vans. So there's no connect or disconnect, but there's still we would just have to assume that if we had some sort of um, mitigation, like a, a sound wall or something, maybe it wouldn't matter. If they're just um, delivery vans, maybe that, that would actually help, that would satisfy that issue. So I'm just, I don't know, Bill, what do yeah. you think? Yeah, and the other thing is keep in mind they're on the other side of the building, right? So you got the entire building to block that sound, so. Yeah, that's true, that's true. And I think they're limited. They don't have a lot of doors on that side. So if it were going to be like a last mile, like they've got down in, in um, Greendale Mall, you know, that's like all doors. I don't yeah. see that. There's 28 bays. Right. Okay. Well, getting back to the point of um, hours. I, so we originally had, I think, but was it 10 to? 10 to 6. 10 to 6. Yeah, I mean, if you think of, you know, that's in the same area of the high school, think of a football game, right? How long does that go to, right? Amy, you said that earlier, right? Could go to 9, 30, 10 o'clock. So I think 10 o'clock is a reasonable time, given the area. It's a little different. I feel like Friday night life that happens three times <laughs> a year is different than a business operating. Every single night, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I'm thinking of is Summer, summertime hours, you know, people are outside, have windows open. We've got, if you had tra truck traffic at 10, up to 10 o'clock at night, it would be a bit invasive. Well, I'm sure the applicant will have feedback on that as well. So maybe yeah. we, that's up for discussion. I'm sure we wouldn't be able to, whatever we pick now, I'm sure it would be shifting. But it sounds like, Bill, you gravitate to a later end. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking what our town, don't we have sound rules in town as well? No, I think those are like 10, 30, 11 o'clock. I don't know if we do. Well, I don't know what they are. Okay. Are there any earthworks permits needed? Do we cover that? Sometimes we used to have the condition that the earthworks permits must go to earthworks. It sounded like CONCOM was taking the place of earthwork, the earthwork yeah. board. I, I had that very early on, uh, letter A. Oh, okay. All right, I think that covers everything that I had. 
Oh, that's right. We put it as part of that condition that covered any sort of permit, whether it's earthwork, the land disturbance, every, et cetera. So Lori combined that into one um, condition. I remember that. Okay, any other, um, just before we close, I just see a couple of hands. Uh, I'll um, allow you to talk for public comments one more time. Um, Jack Wickstead, I know you had trouble before, so I wanna give you the chance to speak. Hi, Jack, just your name and address. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, Jack Wickstead, two Serpert Lane. Um, apologize for missing earlier. The, uh, the criteria that you're discussing, I, I want to apologize, applaud the, the planning board for putting as much effort into this as you obviously are. I would point out that probably the most important criteria are the groundwater for the long-term health and safety of the entire tower. Look, a lot of the lights and the traffic and the mitigation affects the people in my neighborhood, but the groundwater issues affect everybody in town. And I just think it's unconscionable that a corporation the size of the Gutierrez company wouldn't do a phase two report when it's been pointed out to them in a phase one report that there's a recognized environmental condition with possible VOCs on their property. I just think that's just corporate malfeasance. It's ridiculous to think that a corporation the size of the Gutierrez company that has done as much work and business in Northborough as they have done wouldn't be more responsible. And I just wanna put that out there. And I think that the planning board should put a strong contingent upon this and make the Gutierrez company put into writing why they refuse to do this testing. Again, a lot of this is important to me because I'm a resident in this area and I don't wanna be staring at their trucks at 10 o'clock at night. When my kids were going to school in Peasley, they went to bed at eight o'clock. And guess what? Their bedrooms all faced that area. So I think the idea of the trucks going past, you know, till 10 o'clock at night is excessive. I think the lights are going to be ridiculous. I think anybody who has driven past any of the previous Gutierrez projects on Bartlett Street can tell you that it looks like an airport runway over there at night. And the idea that these lights are not going to spill over and be in the windows of all the people who face it are you know, that's just patently silly. Moving the parking lot would not be that big of a deal. Again, these issues are relatively small in the grand scheme of things. The groundwater issue is a serious thing that should be looked into. For all I know, Mr. Donahue may be entirely correct. They may do water testing and find nothing over there, which would be great. It would be great for Northborough, but of course they're refusing to do it because they might actually find something they'd have to clean up. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. I think I just have one more comment here. Um, Janine. Hi, Janine. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. So um, I just want to make a comment on the noise because um, I, I think that the conversation came up when I think it was Amy when I was talking about the sound wall and then you guys went back and forth with trees and personally, I don't want to wait 10 years for trees to mature enough that they're going to block the light. The trees are not going to block the sound. Um, and there's a lot of noise. I don't know if anybody else lives next to an industrial area, but 
I live kind of in the center of Stirrupbrook Lane. I'm going to be able to see the parking lot from my house. And I can promise you that just because of the way that the building is situated, you, we will still hear the 18 wheelers. I promise you, I can hear them almost all the way up by Amazon and their Jake breaks and their, the beeping noises and the sensors and, and I'm in the middle of Stirrupbrook and this is going to be even closer than obviously uh, a Dewey pile FedEx Amazon it's it's in our face so whatever can be done to to fix that that it's not going to be flashing lights and 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 headlights streaming into windows in the neighborhood I would appreciate anything that can be done including the noise that I know that we're going to hear no matter which way the building is situated um I appreciate everything that the the planning board has put into this, but again, it's it's this is huge for this neighborhood, and this is it, it's it's going to be a problem, and it's sad to me. This is my house. This is my home. This is where our kids play. This is where Jack's like Jack said, our kids. There's all little kids in this neighborhood now that go to bed at eight, nine o'clock, ten o'clock is late. It's late. Six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday is late. You can't open your windows. I can't open my windows now with the tra with the truck traffic. Never mind having it in my backyard. It's disappointing to me that this is this is going to be going through. Again, it's, it's our homes. Thank Thanks. you. Appreciate your comments. Uh, just one more here, um, Jean Cahill. Hi, Jean. Hi, hi. Just um, wanted to really quickly say about Arbor Vitae, um, they will get eaten by deer up to a height of four feet. So even when they grow, um, they will not form a wall uh, at that at that elevation. Another thing is pointing to um, what Janine just said, uh, cumulative impacts to this area are such that um, if you look at a map of the entire Worcester City surrounding area, you will not see such a concentration of warehouse space as we already have in Northborough, we're adding another very large warehouse to what is already an unprecedentedly warehoused area. And for those people who have to live with that, um, the noise issues alone are just going to be compounded upon each other. Um, and we have to, we have to get that CVOC uh, condition really good and really tight. And it has to be binding because that is not a condition that we can allow to happen here in Northborough. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry it's so late and that I've commented so much, but thank you for hearing me. Thank you, Dean, for participating. Okay, um, that looks to be it. I think we have a full comprehensive list, unless there's anything else to cover. Um, I do have I one thing. I am, you know, 301 Bartlett is eight to five. That's the hours that those businesses are there. And after she said 6 a.m., you know, that is really early. I would hope that the applicant could come back with later hours. Because if it starts at six o'clock, the other facilities in the area, the people start arriving at five and the noise starts at five when the work is starting at six. 
So I actually would like to see it a little later. I think even seven makes a huge difference over six. Okay. So I think we still, that time will probably go back and forth a few times, but okay. So I think, um, why don't we make a motion to continue to March 21st at 610? Is that what you suggest, Lori? Is that correct? Um, 620. 620? Uh, just, just so you know, uh, Judy Barrett will be attending our, um, our meeting on the 21st and to start the MBTA discussion. And uh, her contract is up at the end of June. So unfortunately, we really don't have any time to push it. She's going to need an hour. So it's going to be another lengthy meeting. And we have 455 Whitney on that night as well. Okay, who's the six o'clock hearing that night? So that would be Judy Barrett. Okay. That's a public so then, hearing? Is Judy a public hearing? Uh, she's not a public hearing, no. Okay. So then uh, 610 is when we're gonna do 455 Whitney Street. And then this one would be 620 is my proposal, but it'd probably be more like 730. Right, that's what I was thinking. So they don't have to sit around with their big group. If we should just do like 730 if it's or seven. Well, what if the others continue? Hmm. All right, well, we know for sure Judy is at least an hour. Yes. Okay, would the applicant prefer that we say a later time so you don't have to sit around for that? Would that be better for us to say seven or would you prefer us to just say an earlier time? We prefer closer when we're gonna get reached. Hmm. Say it again? We would prefer a time that's closer to when we're gonna get reached. Okay, so do you wanna... Um... Well, if, you, if, if you have a, a consultant coming in at six who's gonna need an hour, mm. I, I, it's not like they're gonna continue assumedly unless Judy gets sick. So like seven would seem to make the most sense. If you wanna say 7.30, then that at least let you have spend some time on whatever the other project is you got. Okay. That's okay with me if it makes sense for the applicant. Do you want to say seven or seven thirty? The I <laughs> my suggestion is to to do it seven okay. because what if uh, four fifty five Bartlett doesn't show up? Then we'd have a big hole. Okay, all right. So why don't we say um, a motion to continue the public hearing to seven p.m on March 21st. Is, is there a sense just first as to when we'll see this compiled draft? It sounded like the chair has some comments. I know Ms. Connor has been taking notes. Is there gonna be some compilation that we're gonna get and is there an expected timeline? Yes, I'm gonna, well, Laurie, I'll send you everything I have. Um, if not tonight, then tomorrow morning. And I don't know if you need, am I the only holdup? If or I have anything you need, I can send it tomorrow too. It's already all typed up. Yeah, so um, I've got a busy day tomorrow, but I will try and get it out as soon as possible. If not tomorrow, then first thing on Thursday. Thursday's fine. 
Okay. So um, with that, is there a motion to continue to um, March 21st for Zero Bartlett Street at 7 p.m.? So moved. Second. Second. All in favor, Bill? Aye. Billy? Aye. Anthony? Aye. Amy? Aye. There is an aye. Okay, great. Thanks everybody for staying on so late. And then don't leave Planning Board members. We need a motion to adjourn. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. Um, I don't think we have any old business we need to cover unless Lori, is there anything we need to cover here? No. Okay. Is there a motion to adjourn? So moved. We adjourn. Second. All in favor, Bill? Aye. Billy? Aye. Amy? Aye. Anthony? Aye. And Carrie's an aye. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night.